welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, yeah. how are you doing? I uh, forgot to get my notebook out. Oh, no. Last week it was my pen, right? Yeah. I didn't have the right pen. I found the pen. Oh, thank God. But uh, I know I left... I'm, we were falling what, apart. We've been I'm doing really, this eight and a half years. Like yeah. You'd think I'd have a routine established. I don't even... Have, well, you do have a r- routine established, but it's, it's falling apart. That's the issue. You think I'm losing my memory? Yeah, I think, I think that's so. it. Yeah, I feel like I'm learning too much stuff. See, that's the thing. What, it's pushing it, other stuff out. A common, a common theme of the last few weeks is that David, we're getting older. You're obviously going completely uh, senile, uh-huh. and I'm just getting more and no, more granted. kids get off my lawn <laughs> and angry. And I'm noticing a lot more, uh, and you can relate to this, a lot more white hair in the old beard here uh, that is uh, put, uh, frustrating me, like right there. What, like, you are? Yeah. It's fr- very frustrating. I've got, like, huge tufts of white in my beard. That's true. So you got nothing to But you're growing your beard it. long, and I think that's a problem. Because <laughs> now it's really, really emphasized. You should shave that part down. No, but I like it. I mean, I, I think... Oh, you I think mean, we can get our guests' yeah. input, but I feel like I look a little bit distinguished. Distinguished is the word I was going to I think ask, distinguished yes. is how I look. Your thoughts on... <laughs> your thoughts, We guess? can't say your name yet. Yes. You're still just guest for now. Yes. Okay. Distinguished your is this... Be- are these facial tux? hair opinion giver? Yes. Um, okay. I think... I think, look at my, I, look at my I, I think you look like you're from the 19, 1900s. I do? Oh. Yeah. Okay. That's very hip No, the 1800s. Sorry. It's very hip right now. It like is. I should be like you're a little bit like I should be making like fancy cocktails with yeah. a mortar and pestle. It's a, it's a little bit like <laughs> you know the dream of the 1890s is alive in Portland. Like yeah, that's right, your right, beard right, yeah. right now because it's a little bit because yeah. it's if you didn't have the glasses okay. if it was more of like a monocle look. Oh boy, that okay. would be totally. Oh, I think it's I think it looks good if only because you don't see a lot of people with that kind of beard style. So it makes you okay. look like unique. Okay, thank you. See, well, that's not what I like. That that's not what I'm going for. Yeah, what, what are I'm you go- going for? So, with the short hair on top, right, and the beard getting longer, I'm going for a kind of like from the neck up, scary biker guy, and then from the oh. neck down, regular David. I got. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't come across at all. Maybe I just need to keep growing my beard out. Yeah, get a little scarier. See, yeah. here's what I what I like about the way you phrased that is uh-huh. uh, if you grew up, if anybody uh, grew up collecting action figures, you know that there will be like eight different Batmans. <laughs> there will be like Arctic Blast Batman uh-huh. and stuff like that. So I like not a kind of Mountain Dew, huh? Probably <laughs> you can get it at Taco Bell. Um, well, I'm saying that figure was delicious, and so. Um, <laughs> But yeah, and so I feel like like oh regular David, and then oh uh, uh, psycho biker David. Psy- I like that psycho, psycho biker. biker. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, I wish somebody listeners, if anybody out there manufactures action figures, uh, please make some action figures of psycho biker David yeah. and normal David, <laughs> and then you can make one of me too. Regular. But I can't. Th- what regular regular David regular David. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. So I guess that answers how you're doing. Do you know? When I say regular instead of regular, okay. Uh, do you know what I'm referencing? It's a movie uh, that you and I have laughed about. Oh shoot! I'm over. I'm overdoing it on purpose. He doesn't really say it like that. I don't know. It's Maury Chaykin's character in A Life Less Ordinary, <laughs> who is clearly insane, and to yeah. temper him, Ewan McGregor insists you're regular, and he says, "Yeah, I'm. That's right. I'm regular." I'm a regular person. But he says it with kind of I'm like... a regular person. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Oh, um, Maury Chaykin. I do miss him. 
I and I love a lifeless ordinary. I don't know. Uh, we'll get our guests opinion on a lifeless ordinary. Let me write that down. <laughs> Never seen it. Oh, okay. Oh, well, it's a. Oh, um, it's a very famous a, film noir. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Oh. Uh, it is a. I guess it, we can talk about it. It does sort of have elements. It has like the regular guy getting roped into a life of crime by the femme fatale. Fair enough. So I was, kind of I was joking, but wow. it actually kind of does have a noir type right. of story. So but it's guess, the, so it turns out our guest actually didn't really drop the ball. Um, no. The lifeless ordinary is the Danny Boyle film that everyone forgets. That's true <laughs> because it was after train spotting, but what, what would be, what would have been his next one after, after that? Gosh, I don't know. When did he, uh, the beach, probably that, the beach Danny was Boyle? probably the next one. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, that's. I think you're right because it was that was he did three with Ewan McGregor, mm-hmm. and then the beach was the first non non Ewan. Oh boy, uh, the dark not non Union, but non Ewan. Uh, that didn't go well. <laughs> Though it was also I like the beach. It was also non Union. <laughs> you don't like the beach? No, it just didn't go well for Danny Boyle or Leonardo DiCaprio when it came out. Oh, when it came out, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but see. I guess maybe it's been, you know, revived a little bit. People like to it. To a certain extent. I don't know. I, I, I don't feel like it's There's gotten... A beach, beach I think revival. there are still a lot of people who don't like it. Yeah. Like, there are other movies, um, like Public Enemies from yeah. 2009, yeah. that was not well-received at the time, that, but has very quickly established, like, a really strong, uh, you know, rallying core, yeah. uh, of which I am a member. The Manic um, Cultists are a much stronger than the Danny Boyle. There's, like, no Danny Boyle fan club, really. But the man yeah. people yeah. are like just, I, it's like religious. I think people see Danny Boyle as having gotten much more mainstream, whereas I think they think of Michael Mann as going further down. Yeah, becoming more yeah. himself. Like, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I still haven't seen Black Hat. I'm so fascinated. Did you see it? Yeah. I, I was super watching? late on it because I didn't see it like in theaters. No one did. But I, I, ca- <laughs> I caught it you know, on VOD a couple months ago. It's excellent. It's excellent. I can't imagine how much better it would have been if I had seen it in a theater. That's a good example of a trailer that I'm not. On, it's just like don't care, don't care, don't care. What? Yeah, because it looks the it most directed by Michael Mann, and then it, yeah. that immediately makes you think back on right. everything you just saw and thought and think like, right, this couldn't be more him. What's wrong with me? Well, when I saw the trailer, I thought, is this a parody of Michael Mann trailer? Because it just seemed like everything you would expect from Michael Mann movies in that two minutes. I was just like, this is getting ridiculous already. But the movie itself is actually really like nuanced and interesting. And yeah, it's good. That is one of my favorite things. And I, 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 we don't watch trailers that often, but I remember when I saw the trailer for Match Point. (laughs) <laughs> Boy, did I not expect to see Woody Allen's yeah, name yeah. at the end of that. Uh, but I did have the thought, it was just like, this looks a lot like the Martin Landau story of crimes and misdemeanors. Oh, that would explain it. Yeah, He's just, uh, anyway, sorry, we've got a whole lot of stuff to get to. We can yes. skip my thing if you if we took too long on this. And I, well, um, no, we'll go back to your thing. Okay. But um, you have a new phone? I do. Oh, good for you. I got an iPhone 6. Just, yeah, 6. That's right. Cool. Not a 6S? Not a 6 Plus. Is there such a thing as a 6S? Did I make that up? I don't know. Because there's a 5S. It's a 6 and a 6 Plus, I think. Okay, so okay. there's not also a 6S is what I'm saying. No. Not that I'm aware of. There's just those two. Okay. Um, this is a 6. It I, might be a 6 Plus. I have no idea. No, that, that looks like a 6. That's mine, except oh, okay. mine has a case on it. I'm waiting for my case to come in the mail. It okay, has the yeah. Deathly Hallows on it. Oh, wow. Very exciting. All three of them. That's right. Oh, yeah, all three. Oh, does it have just the one? Just the one, and then you got to, like, use to find the other ones, you know, like, go on a journey to, it like, find the other. It just has the elder one, so it's, there's just a line on it. Yeah. Um, um, that's funny. All right. Yes. 
let's pay some pay some bills. Absolutely. Now, guest, guess yeah. what? Yes. I usually I usually aim guess this at what? David. What? <laughs> um, oh, this episode. This is not your fault. <laughs> this episode is already off the rails. Um, okay, everybody. On uh, this episode is sponsored by Movie curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Right now at Movie, you can help yourself to an Ernst Lubitsch double feature. You can watch The Marriage Circle and To Be or Not To Be. Now, I have not seen The Marriage Circle, but I did recently see... To be or not to be. Uh, have either of you seen that one? Yeah, that's a great movie. Uh, I think it might, I feel like it might have been the first Lubitsch film I'd seen, but I'm not 100% sure on that. And I had, you'd heard about like. So you, were, you reviewed a movie for the. Uh, is a Design for Living, is that him? Yeah. Okay, yeah. all right. Okay. okay, so I saw that one. Um, but uh, I had heard, you know, you hear about like the Lubitsch touch, mm-hmm. and I didn't really know what that meant. Then I saw it to be or not to be, and I realized like there are moments of genuine drama where you really feel the weight mm-hmm. of everything that is happening. I mean, we're dealing with Nazis. And then just crazy farce happens, and there is no shift in tone somehow. I don't know how he does it. It's absolutely amazing, and it has one of my favorite jokes that couldn't that feels so modern to me. And there's a part where uh Jack Benny um is uh, acting as though he is a uh, a Nazi, uh, Colonel Earhart, I believe. And so he's trying to fool this other gen- uh, real Nazi. And apparently this guy Earhart, his nickname is uh, Concentration Camp Earhart. And so Jack <laughs> Benny, yeah, right? Doesn't uh-huh. seem like very funny. <laughs> no. um, but uh, but Jack Benny, he's he keeps like, he kind of has flop sweat going. He doesn't quite understand... Uh, he doesn't really know where to go during the conversation, so he's just stalling. And so he just see, he says this like eight times, maybe not eight times, but he's like, so they call me Concentration Camp Earhart, huh? He just keeps saying that, <laughs> and he, so they'll talk a little bit, and then he'll come back and say it again. So already pretty funny. Yeah. Then they encounter the actual Earhart, and the first thing he says is like, so they call me Concentration Camp Earhart. Like, that is so brilliantly wonderful. I can't, I can't speak highly enough about the film, and it is available at Mubi right now. Uh, those movies and more are available at Mubi.com, and there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi for free uh, for one month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship to redeem now. All right, let's get to our, get to know our guest. Indeed, it's been enough of a of a tease here. No one knows what her name is. Yeah. Uh oh, because they haven't looked at the name of the episode on their <laughs> MP3 player. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're suspending a lot of disbelief as we continue this. But um, I've been a Twitter follower for a long time, uh, and then I uh, heard you on the. Uh, Cinephiliacs podcast yep. with uh, uh, our m- member of the BP family, Scott Nye. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we got to get her on the podcast. And I, <laughs> I think I typed ooh, up an email. Ooh, la, la. I, yeah. di- I dictated an email to my secretary. <laughs> to the slaves you keep here at the <laughs> podcast center. Yeah. Well, um, don't pay anybody. Yeah. <laughs> 
right away. So I'm so glad to have her here. We're going to we're going to talk about film noir in a bit. But uh, first, we're going to get to know our guest, Kristen Sales. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming all the way out here. Yeah, this yes, is cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, this is like sort of a weird place. I didn't even know. You told me the name. Yeah. Are we allowed to say where we are? Yeah. Yeah. It's okay. called North Hills. North Hills. I've lived in Southern California my entire life. Uh-huh. I don't know where North Hills is. <laughs> I had to look it up and then I was like, oh God, the valley. Okay. So yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I'm here. It's fine. Well, and, and it's, it, every guest, their first time in the podcast is also their first time in North Hills. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Like no one ever says like, oh, I know this neighborhood. No, it's not that bad though, because my dad grew up in Northridge. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I yeah. spent a lot of time in Northridge. Well, sometime or whatever, but it's like. If you don't have to go to the valley, I don't know if people do. Do you know what I mean? Like, unless you have a really good reason to come here or you live here. I live in North Hollywood, so I live in the valley. I don't like wasting money and I enjoy larger houses and apartments. Yeah. So I'm okay with the 10 degree, 10 to 15 degree, uh, uh, rise in temperature when you yeah. drive over. It's a valid, it's a valid lifestyle choice because it is hot and expensive anywhere else too i guess right. so, so yeah. It's, yeah um but I'll you know what we the reason we uh at your old place we recorded we never said quite where it was right we've been really fast and loose with like we're really free i guess with where you live now and i think it's because you live in a compound yes. <laughs> people could know where you live and couldn't get in yeah <laughs> meanwhile it's very very easy to get into this compound oh, uh, oh. and so yeah, people could, but there's but there's like 48 units. It's a townhome, so there are 48 units, yeah. and people can. You no, know. it's like a maze. Yeah, it's like the the movie Maze Runner. You just trap people in here. It right? is. You and don't want to be here after dark. Yeah. No, this is going to be a problem. It's crazy. Wow. Gonna, okay, I'm going to die. Like a, yeah. some sort of scorch trial. <laughs> oh, <laughs> just yeah. you could die in North Hills. What? How does that feel? <laughs> Doesn't feel great. Doesn't feel great. But I actually really like this neighborhood. Yeah, it, there's got, a wonderful uh, barbecue place. Dr. Hogley Wogley's Tyler, Texas Barbecue. That's right. That's not a real name. It's it right is. around the corner. Oh, it's my great. God. It's as real as it gets. Um, wow. I just, uh, to come back. I just passed it. You can smell it as you pass it. It's yeah. fantastic. Um, yeah, you got, a, you got a Vallarta not far from here, which is always a good sign. Okay. Vallarta is the uh, Mexican uh, yeah. grocery store chain, chain yeah. that I love. There is and a then, Walmart that I'm pretty convinced the corporation walmart has forgotten about <laughs> it's like a rogue walmart yeah it's like it's a it's like it, i feel like if an actual representative of walmart came to this little outpost uh-huh. they'd just start throwing up they'd just be like what what have you done to our wonderful store <laughs> it's 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 monstrous this this walmart it's in panorama city it's just you walk in and you're like what where am I? This doesn't well, how, feel like how, Can you explain to me how this is like worse or more traumatic than a regular Walmart? Those, at the very least, are they're well kept up, yeah. they're clean, they're bright, very bright. You know, uh, you don't have stuff like that has fallen off the shelf and has stayed fallen off the shelf. Oh, you get people cleaning it up immediately. Okay. Not so with my Walmart, which is the definition of dingy. Yeah, this uh, is like a zombie a apocalypse store. Walmart. Oh, like boy. that's what's happening here. Oh, like, okay, it is. It's that actually zombie. makes me more likely <laughs> yeah. to shop at this specific Walmart because I get sort of creeped out with how like well engineered regular WalMarts are. Uh, feel free to stop. It'll probably be closed by the time you drive by, but feel free to stop by the Panorama City Walmart, which is connected to a mall. So that should tell you how old it is. Yeah. And the mall called the Panorama City uh, Panorama Mall, the uh, the type of which. Could not look more 1983 um, <laughs> with its futuristic quality to, oh, I love my neighborhood. Cool. It's just so yeah. very old. 
<laughs> I love your neighborhood too, actually. Um, let's uh, get to know our guest. Indeed, yes. You said yes. you're from Southern California. I am. Yeah. But you're uh, not. You're not from Northridge. No, I'm not from Northridge. I was uh, born and raised in Whittier, California. Okay. Oh, Richard Nixon. Whittier land of Nixon. That's exactly correct. Um, it's on T-shirts and everything. And uh, also, uh, we had an earthquake once. It was very scary. In Whittier? In Whittier. Now, this predates the Northridge earthquake. Okay. Mm. I was three months old for the Whittier earthquake. Scared my mom half to death. She thought we were going to die. It was really fun for her. And um, so, yeah, that's what Whittier is known for. Richard Nixon. We had an earthquake. Um, also, people get trapped there because it's very far from freeways. Uh-huh. So people, some, sometimes you just end up there and you don't know why, and then it takes you half an hour to get to a freeway. So it's kind of uh, a little isolated, actually. It's kind of nice. And they do a lot of uh, film production there because our uptown is um, rather well-preserved. So if you want to make a movie in, you know, mid-century, uh, 20th century, nice, you can shoot there. Also, they had there's a, a a boys reformatory, a former boys reformatory, that a lot of films and television shows shoot there, and they use it as a prison, oh. like a prison backdrop. So, Ooh. do you know the uh, the Johnny Depp movie Blow? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah where he, when he's in prison, they shot it there. They shoot a lot of stuff there. So. Interesting. That's yeah. very cool. That's a little Hollywood connection. So, did you live in Northridge during the Northridge earthquake? No, no. Okay. That was my grandmother lived there. And oh, okay. Her, okay. She had like a, you know an old you know, fifties style house and her, her, uh, chimney fell over. Oh my. Like this whole giant brick chimney just fell over, but yeah. And then they had to do repairs and everything, but no, it was scary. I mean, I remember my parents talking about it and I remember, you know, it was scary because somebody, you know, people, somebody died. I think it was, Big for, deal. A, for a moment there, I just thought, like, man, Whittier, Northridge, you can't get away from these things. No, no. Yeah, I'm going to live in Tokyo, too. Yeah. It's, <laughs> no, yeah. It's, I mean, I'm very, it's, it's uh, you know, when I meet people from other parts of the country, they're like, they get very scared if they've just moved here and there's an earthquake. No. They, they freak out. I'm just, I've slept through almost every earthquake that I've ever. There was one a few months ago that happened about 6 a.m., and that one was big enough that it woke it woke me up and mm-hmm. my wife and and everybody basically and it was just like it's the biggest one I've and I grew up in Southern California as well, um, which is to say I lived in Ventura for a little while and uh, <laughs> and this that was the biggest earthquake I'd ever experienced. Yeah, sometimes you feel one, you're like, oh, that's a real one. Yeah, and then it just passes. Yeah, yeah. So what I'm taking away from that is you were actually asleep by 6 a.m. at one point. I think I've been asleep for like an hour. Yeah, <laughs> so. Tyler keeps odd hours. I keep late hours. I, uh, oh, okay. The other morning, I guess yesterday morning, I noticed something on our website that wasn't supposed to be there. I won't go into details. Oh, yeah. And I texted you about it when I found out, which is about 10 to 7 in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I told my wife about it, and I was like, he'll probably take it down when he gets up at 1 o'clock. <laughs> is that what I did? <laughs> I, th- I, I don't know if you made it by 1. It might have been one thirty before I actually <laughs> got a response from you, huh? which is fine. Uh, when I Isn't it nice to know that there's really only like... An hour and a half when there's nobody man in the store. Uh, you know. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. When we recently had your friend, uh, I didn't know it was your friend. We had Mariah E. Gates on. Yep. Recently. Oh. You're from Southern California. Yes. She's from Northern California. Yes. Do you guys get into, this is what I was going to ask. No, because but, she doesn't identify as where she's from. Okay. As NorCal, because it's practically Oregon. I've had but many, what, many discussions what, with her about but, but it. This is what we had a discussion with yeah. her. Is where does Northern California start? Because it sounded to me like yeah. she did identify as NorCal, but she said it's like only Sacramento up. But to a Southern Californian, yeah. it's like anything above Santa Santa Barbara 
is right. But I think I think like yeah. when you say like NorCal or Northern California, people basically think of like the Bay Area and above. That's probably what I think. Is that, is right? that a fair assessment? As a Southern Californian, it? the first time I heard the phrase NorCal was to refer to the Bay Area. Okay. So, and this was like, I don't even, I'm like dating myself, but there were all these like weird Facebook wars in like 2004, <laughs> 2005, where people would say like, NorCal sucks, or like the NorCal people would make like, SoCal sucks. It happened to do with like people, like the first wave of people actually going to college. So like you would have people from the Bay Area come down here for college. Hmm. And like they brought all of their weird terminology with them. Uh-huh. And then on campus, people would be like, what is this NorCal nonsense? And then they'd like start Facebook posts about it. So I don't know. Those. The first time that I heard NorCal being referenced. And then there's where I'm actually from, which is Central California, yeah. which no one talks about. No, because so, we just, we just yeah, eat the food that's grown there. Yeah. But, and use yeah. the oil that is drying up. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've talked about that enough. Uh, how, how did you get into movies? Uh, I got into movies through television um, because I used to watch a lot of TV uh, as a kid. Not too many movies, mostly like Disney, your typical Disneyfied childhood. Um, but my favorite show when I was a kid um, was The X Files because hmm. I was a weirdo, and um, I I watched it, you know, from ages of six to thirteen while it was airing, and I got super into it, and I started reading all the you know behind the scenes books and all the interviews and everything, and the the writers and directors would name check all these movies that had influenced the look of mm-hmm. the television show, their influences, and so I just started renting all those movies. Was it a lot of horror it. and sci-fi at first then? Um, yeah, it was actually a fair bit of, of noir too, because okay. I, I think of X-Files more as a police procedural that has supernatural elements rather than a horror okay. or a sci-fi show that, you know, take, has police. And, um, for, and it became even more of that when Robert Patrick joined the show, I think. Yeah, I don't really talk not about that, those later that, yeah. seasons, but it's the, <laughs> I remember, my well, wins I just, are still I deep. His, I liked his character a lot uh-huh. just because, like yourself, and it's and it's not a, a it's not. I feel like it's not a really explored subgenre, which is the detective story with super, supernatural elements, like where they're just trying to deal with the ramifications of this stuff but there are much larger things going on than they're aware of yeah and they're trying to make it work i feel like that's a that's a thing that has a lot of there's a lot of power in that subgenre, and i feel like it's not explored enough no because i feel like as soon as people realized that that was the x-files formula and like the secret to their success there were a bunch of shows that tried to like you know spin off this and there were all these sort of like fallen by the wayside 90s and 2000s shows where it would be like two cops like investigate werewolves or whatever and they would last you know <laughs> half a season or six episodes or whatever but actually like what was the one with yeah. uh lou demon phillips and the werewolves yes was i remember Wolf lake i think Wolf yes lake. it was my one. god what a pull on cbs <laughs> i think yeah that's crazy but it's like you know so Reading all of these, you know, reading about what Chris Carter and Vince Gilligan and Darren Morgan were reading and watching while they were making these shows, like, just really was the basis of my cinematic education. And also, I really, really liked the look of this show, which ties into our subject, because I think that for the first three or four seasons of the show, it looks more like film noir Mm -hmm. or like a Val Luton movie Mm -hmm. than maybe any other horror or sci-fi you know references um i want to give a shout out to the cinematographer john s bartley who does not get enough credit for 
shaping the look of the X-Files because he had a really like um, I think uh, his look was really informed by you know the classic film or cinematographers like John Alton and people like that you put those still side by side and, and see where they were coming from so did you watch uh, Millennium at all? Um, you know, I never did watch Millennium because I was, I don't know why. I just never did and I never have. I watched the I, first season and it's not bad, but I will say that like. How long was it on? Only like. I think it was on maybe two or three seasons. Yeah, maybe a fair amount of seasons. Yeah. I think it was maybe um, even four. Yeah. And I remember thinking it was pretty good, but I will say that there's just something because you had Lance Henriksen. Mm-hmm. alone mm-hmm. now he had a wife that he would come back to and talk to and then he had people that he would work with but he was basically alone and that was all and it worked fine but there's something about two people yeah. like partners and just bouncing things off of each other that i feel like works much better and of course and you know to go with the film noir thing the person being alone seems like it would fit better but when you're dealing with supernatural things you want somebody to you want to be able to say to someone next to you, like, hey, this is crazy, right? Right, and you need to have the, you know, the famous Mulder Scully dynamic, the yeah. believer and the skeptic dynamic. And that's why I think that the show was so successful and yeah. has been imitated so much. And then once you got into the other character, the, the newer characters later in the season, mm-hmm. that dynamic got a little screwed up because it wasn't just, you know, the believer and the skeptic. There were shades. And so the dynamic shifted and it became, I think, maybe less satisfying. Mm-hmm. Because they were going in different directions, but three seasons, three, three seasons. seasons. Okay. Right. Now, my fa- I love that we're talking about this now. Um, my favorite supernatural noir television series was Angel. Did you watch Angel? No, you know I've never watched Buffy or Angel. It, those are my two favorite series of all time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. All right, you should totally check those out. <laughs> I've got good news for you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, good God! I can't believe the best news. <laughs> I'm so I'm a I am sorry David I'm sorry to you. Oh okay. I'm sorry to our guest. Uh, okay. I'm going to talk about a video game or a computer game that I played when I was a kid. Yeah. That I think you would love. They just reissued a 20th anniversary with new graphics and such. Okay. And new voice acting. It is called I'm so sorry. It's called Gabriel Knight okay. Sins of the Fathers. It's a, a computer adventure game and it's this guy living in New Orleans who's a, a mediocre novelist. And he's researching a series of uh, seemingly voodoo-related murders in his city. And the deeper he gets into it, the more he encounters the supernatural aspects and that sort of thing. And it's marvelous. Are you and apologizing because you just because you've talked about it a lot before? I've talked about it a lot recently because of that 20th anniversary yeah. thing. And uh, no, but it sounds cool. It's uh, you. If I don't know if you're, in, I'm not into video games, but I liked computer games at the time. And I do credit back when we did an episode about like the things that that influenced us as film fans, you know, uh, it's not just movies that, you know, like yourself, it, mm-hmm. X-Files influenced the way you look at movies and the movies that you like. And for me, it was certain TV shows and, and, and certainly movies as well, but also certain computer games and Gabriel Knight sins of the fathers. There were three of them. That first one is the one that I played uh, the most. It's um, fathers, plural? fathers. Yes. I think um, in all the times you talked about it, I'd never heard that. Oh, I'm sorry. I do. Singular. I do drop that S. It's a look. It's a Central California thing. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but yeah, and and it's just and also just the the iconography of the main character. He's got like a trench coat and all that. Sort yeah, of thing. yeah. So is it sort of like it reminds me of Angel Heart, you uh, know, Mickey Rourke. The uh, yeah. the creator said that she was heavily influenced by Angel Heart when she, which I've never seen to this day. Oh, it's very it's very cool and very weird. Yeah, great performance by Robert De Niro. 
very like sort of untypical Robert De Niro performance, and one that no one talks about. Again, I haven't no, seen the movie, so I don't his, know. It's but. one of his best because it's very like scary and creepy and compelling, but not in a sort of like over the top way. Like it's not a Max Caddy kind of performance. Yeah. It's kind of under. I got a radar. I'm yeah. excited. And you got to play this game. You're welcome. No, okay. <laughs> I got to find, I guess I'll have to find a computer I can play it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now you mentioned that Gabriel Knight wears a trench coat. That's right. You know who else wears a trench coat? Who's that? Is Rorschach. Oh, geez. From the Watchmen. Oh, here we go. Now, his is more of a raincoat, I should say. Okay. I'm just trying to get Fair us enough. to where you want, you wanted us to go. I was perfectly willing to put it to the <laughs> no, side. We all agreed all beforehand. Right. We all sliced our thumbs and, <laughs> Became Blood Brothers. Again, was that packed. was not my idea. Yeah. You really <laughs> okay. latched onto this. Like, hey, guys, no. let's cut ourselves. Well, wanted, it is noir-related. I mean, that's true. let's be exactly. honest. Exactly. You wanted to bring up the fact that Republican uh, presidential hopeful, uh, the uh, uh, presumptive nominee. <laughs> no, not at all. I don't <laughs> think there is one right now. That would no, be but, a little too presumptive, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but any chance I can get to use the word presumptive. It's a fun word. That you don't get to use it that a often. Very pleasant. <laughs> it's every four years you get a lot of chances to use the word presumptive. <laughs> um, uh, the presumptive uh, <laughs> um, non-nominee, oh, Ted my. Cruz, yeah. uh, um, uh, said that Rorschach from the Watch Watchmen uh, series mm-hmm. uh, of comics um, is one of his five favorite he did it high fidelity yeah. style. Top five. Yeah. Well, I think somebody. Favorite I don't think he just rele- released it on Twitter. I think it was on his blog. Yeah. In his Tumblr. <laughs> He's like, no, he didn't call a press conference <laughs> to say that he really liked yeah. Rorschach. It was 3 15 a.m. <laughs> and he just like, you know, guys, it's like, I think Ted Cruz might be really high right now. Um, <laughs> Ted Cruz thought. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And so, uh, yeah. So I'm going to take the. I'm going to be the devil's advocate. Not the devil's advocate because I don't believe this, but I'm going to be your straw man here. Okay. No, it's not a straw man. These are people. These are actual people. There are, there are entire uh, articles written about this. I'm going to put on the skin of the, of the, of the liberal because I am the liberal at the table. Um, Yeah. But you're also, okay. Yeah. Yeah. What am I also? You're also somebody who understands that art can be more fucking complex than this shit. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, So here's what I'm going to say. Oh, pretty telling, huh? That right. uh, Ted Cruz likes the uh, sociopathic uh, fascist, right. right? Yeah. And so this bothers you. It bothers you. Because you're me. a huge Ted Cruz supporter. I, it, <laughs> if there's one politician I know everything about, from his name to his party, it's Ted Cruz. <laughs> well, and, and now his five favorite superheroes. <laughs> yeah. Although there's only one I, I there was I think the Spider-Man Iron Man went there. But anyway, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it. It bothers me so much, and it goes like, and maybe it's because, along being a, you know a politically conservative, I'm also uh, a Christian, and Christian audiences would do this all the time. They would say that, oh, you like such and such. Well, I don't know. You should maybe check what, maybe why. Why do you like it? And it's like the idea of responding to the style of something. That's off the table. No way. That's mm-hmm. out. And in this case, because there's a political agenda behind it, it's it's an opportunity to bash Ted Cruz. And my guess is that if <laughs> this is a weird, this is, this is, I was trying to think of a comparison and this is the best I came up with. I'm sorry in advance. Um, if president Obama had said that he loves battleship Potemkin, <laughs> I'm sure any number of, of, uh, conservatives would be like, yeah, I'll bet you do pinko. You know, they'd probably jump to that. Like any opportunity that a person can, can take to jump on something. But of course you and I know that if the president said he loves uh, Battleship Potemkin, 
you and I know it's like, well, there's plenty of stuff. There's plenty right. of amazing things in that movie to like, just as in my opinion, Rorschach is such an amazing complex character. And, right. and maybe Ted Cruz, uh, maybe he uh, really responds to Rorschach's philosophy. Maybe he doesn't. I don't know, and neither does anybody else. But we can't. What your, your point is, and even though I'm, there, uh, my, my, what I'm saying is, there's plenty of reasons to uh, make fun of Ted Cruz. Sure. Um, yeah, but as defenders of art at this table, or at yeah. least I can't speak for all three of us. But uh, yeah. so that was I hate, I hate art. As defenders, uh, of big art, thumbs down on that. Um, <laughs> I definitely do bristle at the idea that. Um, saying you're a fan of a particular, you know, you and I have been singing the praises for eight and a half years of the movie Ravenous. Oh yeah. It doesn't mean we're endorsing eating human flesh. Don't speak for me. It doesn't mean we're not. It doesn't mean we are. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And so uh, I bristle at the idea that that can be attached to you, that you can be, you know, I I like, I, I, cause I think about this uh, a, a lot, you know, like when, um, when politicians list their favorite bands, you know, mm-hmm. and they say like ACDC is a pretty safe choice, but if you were to say to yeah. parse all the lyrics of ACDC, it could get pretty raunchy or sexist in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And you could like, if you wanted to, you could say, Oh, well, if you like ACDC, you must, uh, yeah. you know, be a real, yeah. he, you, real, real hidden. You must love, you know, contract killers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I, and so, uh, I am no fan of, uh, of Ted Cruz. Um, but I, I don't think I, I don't like getting into this uh, this realm mm-hmm. that uh, people. What, I, think, what are your I, th- I think if you I think I think if you parse it like that, then you you know run the risk of just having a bunch of like really safe, boring picks. Like to me, it's exciting. Number one, that presumably he's Red Watchman, which is exciting mm-hmm. to have. He may, a he may have only just seen the Zack See, Snyder movie. And then it's true. And then that's the other thing that bothers me is maybe somebody in his camp or his people. We're like, hey, there's this superhero that a lot of like political conservatives or whatever take <laughs> as you know evincing a, a certain ideology, and you should mention that character to you know rally your base or yeah. to appeal to the people who like that character. So to me, but it's either even, even it's either very authentic or like completely <laughs> yeah. fake, just to be like, oh, Rorschach, that's cool. Like I don't know. It's but well, even conservatives, cold-hearted and violent. As they are. Yes, obviously. Uh, I think they, I don't think they, I don't think anyone really endorses Horoshock. I don't, I, I, I don't think the tone of the, of either the movie or the, or the book, uh, lends itself to, to that. Which speaks you, to, I'm, I'm sorry, go on. I feel like you're down. You, you think there are conservatives out there who are like rah-rah Rorschach. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Rorschach's like the most popular Watchmen character and not... And not just because he's like, you know, he taps into the film noir tradition of mm-hmm. the, you know, of the anti-hero, of the, the narrator, the fact that he looks cool, the fact that he, you know, is, is violent. Mm-hmm. Um, part of his appeal is the fact that he is doing, he takes it upon himself to do the things that the char- the other characters in the novel will not, which to many people is a heroic ideal. Well, and and it's there's an idea there at the end that it winds up, I think, being rather tragic, which is that he he literally cannot live with compromise. Like he mm-hmm. can't do it. Now, don't get me wrong; the person he's compromising with is something of a monster himself. Maybe a right. much worse. One. I think it would be a bigger red flag if anyone ever said that Vite was one of their favorite uh-huh. superheroes. Yes. Then we'd be in trouble. Which, when I posted about this on Facebook, somebody said that uh, Ozymandias was their favorite character. And I was like. Uh oh. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's weird. But that, you know what? But that's the thing. Let him enjoy it. Yeah. I, I find, as oddly enough, uh, I've 
come to really think the comedian is fascinating. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I like rape, nor does it mean that I like all the horrible things that he thinks, but I find him fascinating. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing, the three of us, and this is going to sound really elitist, but I don't give a shit. We understand that art is, it's bigger than politics. It's bigger than religion. It's bigger than, and I say that as somebody who loves politics and religion, like, or maybe not even bigger. It just transcends those, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and it's intersectional. There are, yeah. there are many things going on. Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, we talked about this a while ago, that like, you know, David, you mentioned that, that horror is often considered, often considered to like politically have certain conservative ideas. And yet there, I know plenty of liberals that love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and just, and also just in general, the way that people talk about those that love horror movies, it's like, yeah, they're regular people. It's fine. They're not, they're not themselves monsters. They might be incredibly obnoxious, but that's a different thing. Um, and yeah. so, it, no, I can get that as a, as a, yeah. as a metal fan. Sure. Yeah. There yeah. you go. And so it's, it's just, it just bothers me so much. And, and I, I hope that it would, again, I'm not, I don't consider myself a Ted Cruz fan. I don't really know much about him. I wish I knew more. I guess I'm, I guess I will as the campaign season goes on, but as, like, he, as he becomes more and more presumptive. Yeah, it's, yeah. Oh boy. And as he's, right as now, he's, he's asked he's, to defend his Rorschach opinions <laughs> on the PBS news hour, they asked him about Rorschach, you know, but, but, and, and one thing that came in that I thought was very interesting is in reading some of these articles, people talked about the intention of Alan Moore and that, Oh, for Ted Cruz to say that Warshak is one of his favorite superheroes means that he didn't understand the intention of Alan Moore. And David, you, you know what you and I say about a, a mm-hmm. filmmaker or an artist's intention. That's all well and good. But again, I don't know why Ted Cruz likes the character. I love the character and he might love him for the same reason I do because right. he's so complex and fascinating. And he might not, he might completely agree with Alan Moore's uh, view of Rorschach. But even so, uh, a long time ago, I made reference to an article where a woman talked about um, how, uh, oh, Animal Farm in 19... 19- the work of George Orwell uh, was very much that these days we can, really, we can really apply that to like corporate America and just the way these corporations are running things. And just like, that's what these are really about. And it's like... And I remember I had two reactions. One was like, well, it's not actually what they're about. They're about communism. But if you want to take this and make this however, you know, if you want to spin this your way, that's fine. So that's the political side of me. The artistic side of me is if that's how you want to take it, great. That's the great thing about art is it's really malleable. Mm-hmm. Like what a person intends doesn't, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it doesn't have to inform how I approach that person's reaction. Um, let me say this and then we can get off this. Okay, I'm sorry. It's, um, uh, I thought it would what be did you, an interesting discussion. This reminded me of the la- uh, something that happened in the last election. Okay. Um, when Paul Ryan said that yeah. he was a Rage Against the Machine fan. Yeah. Now, that's a, this has been more difficult because there's not a lot of room for interpretation when it comes to the lyrics of Rage Against the Machine. Right. Like, Paul Ryan has to know that he's the enemy to sure. Rage Against the Machine. But it's okay for him to still like the music, right? That's fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, like, he was, like, a big, like, workout guy. And so right. it's sure like I think something to, like, get him going. Exactly. Right? I think that's probably what, what happens. Because <laughs> sometimes it's like, you know, you just get into the, the music and then you and then you sort of tune out the lyrics as it does it gets you pumped up yeah that is extreme i had not remembered that from the last <laughs> yeah, election and the, cycle and that is fascinating and hilarious yeah. and i love that i was going to actually bring it up but i i forgot the band yeah. i forgot what it was but uh, oh, yeah. but that's the thing you know it's important to rage rage against the machine and as we all know there's only one party that really uh, advocates for big government 
Uh, right, yes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Oh, yeah, let's look at George W. Bush's spending record it's, versus Clinton's. He's okay. fine. Let's, uh, let's move on. Uh, let's, let's very awkwardly get into our next ad. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> well, no, let's be capitalists here. Damn right. right. Let's, Damn right. Uh, yeah. So oh, Rorschach would love it. <laughs> so now, I, normally I tell you guys about Tweaked Audio. Okay. I still stand by everything I said, but Tweaked Audio has, has, has added a new wrinkle that mm. I stand by even more. Even I, more? I endorse this uh, presumptively. Oh. endorse this i haven't actually tried the product yet right We're, we will soon. they're sending them to us because they're awesome guys over there at tweaked and girls um oh thank you <laughs> thanks for your inclusiveness <laughs> sure you didn't find that patronizing at all right not at all um tweaked audio presents hegon sport earbuds we're, we're taking a stab in the dark at the pronunciation yes. there. For this week, until Tweaked Audio tells us otherwise, it's Hegon. Mm-hmm. Hegon sports earbuds. They sound great and are made specifically for physical activity with special silicone caps that help them stay in your ears as you're exercising. Plus, they're water-resistant and made for the long haul. Just click on the ad at battleshippretension.com to get to the Tweaked website. When it's time to check out, use the code pretension to get 33% off. Absolutely. Or you can still do what we say, which is go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension indeed so yeah either you go to oh you know what portal. hang on that's oh, not true anymore oh they dismantled that uh yeah so, so we don't have our own portal you just go to tweakedaudio.com or you know click through from the battleshippretension.com Please website do. and then when you check out use the code pretension Absolutely. to get 33 percent off indeed still no shipping charges right they will ship you just don't have to pay for it <laughs> wanted to make that clear <laughs> still no shipping i'm sorry we, there's a lot of very angry customers <laughs> who are just looking at their watch uh, um all right let's get into it shall we indeed now you right. because uh Kristen, because you um are a very nice person because you've listened to the show before um apparently oh, have you you asked, i have yeah oh i'm sorry <laughs> no it's all right so oh, i knew this, how this was gonna go here's a fu- oh this is fun how much of the show have you listened to? Um, a select number of episodes, maybe five or six. Oh, okay. All right. That's fine. So you don't have to worry. So you're not worried about like, you know, I don't have to worry about disappointing you. No. You know, okay. <laughs> you're all right. We've had people on who've been listening for years and it's like, oh boy, this is. It's not like I have like a copy of one of those posters on my wall or like little, Would you like little one? fan art of like you guys with like hearts around it or anything. I'm not like one oh. of those people. Do you have the action figure with the psycho biker David? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I'm going to get it made though. I'm going to talk to my people, oh, my action figure do. people, and it's going to happen. Uh, but because you're familiar with the show, you asked, what's the topic going to be? Which often with guests, we don't, uh, you know, we used to always force a topic on the guests. We find that with some guests, it was better to just go, let's just talk about movies. No. But you are an awesome person and a big movie fan. So you said, what's the topic going to be? And we decided to do a topic that somehow in eight and a half years, we haven't actually done as a topic. Right. We talked about neo-noir. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about German expressionism. Right. And I think we were holding off on this one. And obviously, it's a thing we can always return to because it's just so big. Right. But, um, but, but yeah. But now we have a guest who wants to talk about Absolutely. film noir. So let's dive in. Let's get into it, shall we? Let's talk about film noir. All right. What did you want to talk about? Pro or con? <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen of America, I'm here to tell you that I am pro film noir. <laughs> uh, I'm running on a pro film noir platform. Oh, 
So. Oh, that's pretty risky for a presumptive nominee like you. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's. Uh, I just thought that this would be a really rich topic. And when you said you hadn't talked about it before, I was like, let's get into it. Because I feel like... I like to use my catchphrase. Yeah, that's very Let's get into it. Is it really? Let's get into it, shall we, is my catchphrase. Okay. Oh, you're rubbing off on me, I guess. Um, (laughs) I I, I stole it from another radio show, by the way, that I listened to growing up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but we've eclipsed that. Yeah. Oh, you're much more popular. (laughs) Um, I just feel like Fulmore is, like, um, continually uh, popular and remains popular, and it seems like... Uh, new film fans, like sort of people who are just starting to get into movies, usually come across film noir pretty early in their watching, and it becomes something that they can sort of latch on to because it has. There's a great pool of films to tap into, and also it's very uh, visceral and very immediately identifiable. So if you're watching a film noir, or if you watch a bunch together, you can identify certain things visually, and that sort of like helps your film education so i feel like film noir is like a good way to get people who maybe want to get into film or want to get into classic film it's a kind of a good avenue to start people on because i feel like they're still relevant and people really enjoy watching films films more uh i'm glad you said you said that as like because i it's totally true but i hadn't even thought of it as like a gateway like because i did and i think most people that i know when getting into film at an early like in high school you learn like what film noir is and yeah. you get excited about it. And I, I think that I, and I kind of, I wonder why that is, but I feel like I'm going to take a stab in the dark, maybe at some, uh, guesses. I think that m- more than a lot of other genres, there's something that there are things about film noir that are, um, true, not only about story beats, like you get in a lot of genres, um, and character types, but also a visual thing. So it's mm-hmm. like the, it's almost like it's like the whole package of something that is inherently cinematic. Yeah. All in one. I think know? that's a great point. And then also this I mean, this ties into what we were talking about in the beginning, because I feel like noir style and sort of certain visual elements of noir are so saturated in the culture outside of cinema, you know, in comics, mm-hmm. in um still photography even in fashion i feel like people know these elements even if they don't know the name film noir even if they've never seen a film noir so like anyone who's read sin city or seen sin city or any of these comic book adaptations because you know these a lot of uh comic books have sort of taken from the film noir tradition and rendered them you know visually in a sort of uh, pop style, and then those comics again are sort of like reiterated back on television or movies, and so it's something that's already sort of in the culture. And I feel like um, the idea of, of film noir as gateway, I, I agree. I think that's probably true. It, it was certainly true for me, um, and I think it's partially because um, I've talked to so many people who aren't. It's not that they're not film fans; they just they're not that familiar with older film, and so when you show them an older film that is not necessarily a film noir, it's a different style of acting. Mm -hmm. It's a different style of writing. Mm -hmm. And it's, and in other movies, if it's not a screwball comedy or something like that, um, well, in theory, it's, it's meant to reflect reality, but everything, but I'd say most things were more heightened back then, Mm -hmm. um, in film. And so someone would watch that and just think, wow, this is really melodramatic. And they'd say it in a negative way. Or they'd say, this is really over the top. This is really cheesy or any of these other things um, because it was meant to reflect reality. Right. 
film noir, no one would ever say that that's re- trying to reflect reality. The characters speak in a very specific way. The the performance, like they're living in a in a highly stylized world, and so for highly stylized performances like Peter Lorre, or frankly, even as much as I love Humphrey Bogart, just the, his not his the way he spoke and just the way he looked on screen, no one would ever say, Oh, that's like a regular guy. Yeah. He had a very specific way that he came across. And so someone like him would excel in film noir because he, he himself is heightened and somebody like Peter Laurie as well. And so I think people would look at that and think, and suddenly the, the, the oldness of it, the, and one could say the otherness of it isn't so bothersome because no one would ever accuse this film of trying to be reality. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like there's a, there is a timelessness to it. I mean, almost any friend that I've had, um, again, that doesn't really respond to older films, they'll always watch, uh, anytime I've watched a film noir with them, they'll love it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that's a really good point in terms of realism, because for me, like film noir is the nexus of realism and expressionism, mm-hmm. because the stories themselves are almost always very street level, and I think this, like you're saying, it sets a lot of noir apart from contemporary films in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And they were often, Hollywood films at the time were often meant to be aspirational. And so you get a lot of people who are upper middle class or upper class. They're living, you know, what are what are supposed to be good lives. And it's not, it's it's meant to be aspirational for the audience, but it doesn't, there's a there's a distance there and i think with film noir a lot of it is a lot of them are b pictures a lot of them is are are dealing with you know working class characters or people that are on the margins of society and i feel like that since you know the 70s or so in american cinema that's been more in vogue and so those kinds of stories are more readily i think people are more open to dealing with people who are maybe sort of regular people or people who are getting into problems that they can't get out of. I feel like that is mm-hmm. an internally modern and relatable thing. There are no happy endings in film noir, which I think is really appealing. Yeah, it's but a what, modern sensibility in that yeah. regard. Mm-hmm. What's you mentioned getting into problems that you can't get out of, but it's I think there's something more than that that is, that is universal that I think um modern audiences uh, respond to in the ways they don't to melodramas is that the thing you get into is alluring. And so I think just like, you know, since the eighties on, since Watchmen on and stuff, we've been looking at like, you know, deconstructing superheroes and mm-hmm. having like, uh, you know, seeing the more realist realistic darkness in them. I think people are more accustomed to, I don't know, antiheroes or, you know, um, having seeing movies that in some way or another reflect the darker sides of themselves. And so I think that's maybe why noir um, remains relevant because I think we like to see there's a, there's a bit of a, it's not, not, not like wish fulfillment, but a bit of a, like, let's see, I want to see what, uh, what these regular, you know, every man or whatever are, are capable of. And maybe see some of that in myself, you know, what I, would I rob a bank? You know, would mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. would I, you know, push this, uh, this, this lady's rich husband off the back of a train? <laughs> like, yeah. well, like, uh, you know, I mean, there, I'm certain, I, I don't know, maybe I'm like, uh, revealing too much about my own interior life, but sometimes you daydream about stuff. Well, like, but that's the thing is, I think, I think you're right on because 
film noir often, you know, I would say not necessarily like detective noir, but certainly something like uh, Double Indemnity or something like that, uh, Postman Always Rings Twice, um, where you have just regular people just looking for, kind of chasing, quote unquote, the American dream Mm -hmm. and or just this idea of like, well, if I work hard and keep my nose down, I'll be successful and I'll get everything that I want. Um, But it might not actually work out for them. And so it's like, all right, well, if this isn't going to work for me, maybe something else will. And then I'll be successful. Then I'll be happy. And then I don't have to do this bad stuff anymore. But I'll, I'll, have, I'll have achieved what I, what I want. And, you know, and in doing so, what these characters often want is not different than what anybody else wants. And they're, they're going after it the way we're encouraged to do so. And then it's not going well. And so I think everybody can relate to all right, if I just work hard, then I can achieve these things. Um, and I need, and well, but, uh, but then there's the idea of straying from the, from the, the path of, of righteousness mm-hmm. and that that will always end poorly. But then if you have these characters sticking to the straight and narrow, their life is going to go nowhere fast. And so th- I think mm-hmm. that's something that people can relate to is the idea of, you mentioned earlier, they're in a situation they can't get out of. And the situation is not, I, oh, now I'm involved in this crime. It is that more directly, but it's also, how do I get out of this life? This re- this boring, regular right. life yeah, yeah, that the, isn't exciting. The idea of temptation and how yeah. that can take you to on a different path, and that path is just as, yeah. just as much as a, a dead end as whatever the straight and narrow you were on. It's it, I think quintessentially... Th- the thing that unifies film noir above anything above style genre whatever you want to call it is the idea of fatalism of being uh a deterministic kind of uh worldview so i I kind of view film noir actually as more of a a way of thinking a way of a way of living sort of an ethos or almost a philosophy Mm -hmm. because that's what unifies these type of stories is that you know getting tripped up by fate you know, over and over again, and whatever you do, you're not gonna you're not gonna outsmart whatever is the force that is sort of outside of yourself. But doesn't that come from, I guess, in post-war America, uh, a middle-class white Americans, especially, were being sold this idea of this is what the norm is in this like white picket fence suburban life, a very affluent life is the norm now they're being told that Mm -hmm. at every turn by advertising and television and movies. And so that's why you end up with characters who feel like, um, like I'm I'm trying to think of an example, like in uh, pitfall, a guy, a guy who just like, uh, have you guys seen pitfall? I have not. Yeah. Just a guy. Yeah. Just a guy who he's just doing what he does. He gets up, he has Mm -hmm. a house, he gets up, he goes to work every day. He, you know, has a weekly sort of like, uh, poker night or something with his boss like he has he's doing everything he's supposed to be doing right and he still has this internal like malaise and that leads him to 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 stray and i think that i think that's why film noir became so popular at the time it did because there was probably a lot of this frustration of people feeling like i'm i'm doing everything that the commercials are telling me to be doing why am i not as happy well and it's also you know to bring in the the post-war thing it's a lot of the people that are starting these new lives and buying these nice houses, they're being, they're basically being told either overtly or not, just forget it. 
all the shit you saw, mm-hmm. all the monstrous stuff that you witnessed or maybe even were responsible for, hey, it was war. And it's done now. So mm-hmm. now you can just go back to your nice wife and your children and your nice house and everything will be fine. It's like that never existed. But of course, the people know that it's still there. I mean, my own grandpa was in the Navy and he, I mean, he didn't even like he saw some rough action, but compared to some, like he never like, you know, stormed the beaches or anything like that. Yeah. And even he had nightmares right up until his death uh, almost nine years ago. I mean, that's uh, that's insane. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's just, it's whether they're admitting it or not, there's an awareness that underneath, the thing that made these nice, this nice life possible was tremendous, monstrous violence. Yeah. Um, I think that the, they had the, to the do. trauma of World War II is really at the heart of film noir, at least the, yeah. the classical period. And part of the problem with replicating film noir post-classical period is trying to come up with a, a, like, a like-minded kind of trauma to induce you know the characters to have similar motivations so you get sort of a a little bit of a strain of neo-noir dealing sort of right after the vietnam war Mm -hmm. you know like in the early 80s you have like body heat and things like that and then also i think you're you you saw and are seeing um a little bit of that post 9-11 so you have these sort of sites in american culture where you can sort of draw parallels to world war ii and i think when that happens you have sort of a little bit of a little cycle of neo-noir that pops up because it's a similar thing happening and culture sort of goes back in on itself and people are like let's go back let's you know, reify normalcy. Let's let's no. get back to the family and these kinds of values. But I I, I, I agree. But I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like your examples there are all correct, but they're all either you know militaristic or or have to do with war or something like that. But I feel like there's also an ongoing uh, economic problems that goes back to what I was talking about. You know. Um, well, you, I, mentioned, I, you mentioned malaise, well, yeah, which yeah. is interesting uh, but, uh, choice of words. Um, I, I was going to point out that, um, well, you know, things like inflation and stuff have continued to rise. The average middle class income has barely budged since the like mid to late 80s in mm-hmm. this country. So I think there's kind of there's always something that's going to be upsetting people enough to tap into that kind of disappointment yeah. with with the norm or disillusionment maybe that that uh yeah that, that, whenever that, that there's an, whenever on. there's an unbalance mm-hmm. in the culture obviously yeah. but it's like i think just that's why people that's why i think sometimes neo-noirs struggle to sort of make a case that they are a noir it's just because contextually things have changed so much since the since world war ii and post-war do you have any examples of neo-noirs you think don't uh I only have a couple of examples of neo noirs that I think are I think are good. One one example oh. that's a that's a post nine eleven that uses nine eleven as sort of a similar trauma is this movie called The Missing Person, starring Michael Shannon and Amy Ryan, hmm. and um, it's contemporary. I think it's like two thousand nine, two thousand ten. But Michael Shannon um, is a private detective, which is already like an anachronistic job he wears a suit i think he wears a hat even he takes the train like a lot of these things in his life are very much like throwbacks but the 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 movie has a really good reason for him to sort of be in an old style profession and for the movie to be in an old style and that's because he's dealing with uh 
9-11 trauma, which is why he doesn't fly. So he, he takes the train cross country. So you're using like all of these like older technologies because it really like this guy is so damaged from that event that it sort of takes him back in time a little bit. And it sort mm-hmm. of justifies the the kind of noir storytelling that the movie wants to get away with. But there aren't that many examples of that. That's like only one of the only ones I've seen in the past 10 years. Well, and what's interesting is I, I feel like you know, one thing that we're talking to go back to like these major events, World War Two, Vietnam, nine eleven, that sort of thing. Um, it's almost as though with with each of these major events, and then of course, David, I agree, the idea of just economically things getting a bit more dire as we go. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like layers of for lack of a better term, naivete, or if you want to say innocence, are just getting pulled back little by little, or in some cases, chunk by chunk, like with something like 9-11, until you just realize that, like, you know, not to be super fatalistic, but that's the nature of the conversation. Like, nobody's safe. You can't trust anybody. Uh, All the stuff that we've been told is correct might be correct, but that's not going to save me. Um, And so I feel like there have certainly been a lot that, I mean, we did a, an episode a long time ago on post nine 11 movies and, um, but to bring it into certain noir elements, I feel like certainly, and I don't, I don't having just come from comic con and have pe- having heard people just talk about like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, though they're the end all be all. <laughs> I will say that the element of darkness of those movies, it is different than the Tim Burton darkness. Yeah. This is a lived in darkness. This is a genuine, depressing darkness. And while Batman Returns with its basic black and white uh, uh, palette uh, is not necessarily upbeat, it's stylistic and goofy enough that no one would ever watch it and feel bad. Whereas I feel like you could look at at the the rise and fall of Harvey Dent. You could look at the at the uh, philosophy of the Joker and just the complete chaos. And you have a character who there's a nobility to him, but he also is willing to compromise constantly in order to get something done as though that's the only way that anything's ever going to get done in this, in the world that we live in. And, and the feeling that like he's fighting a losing, but he's never going to win. Um, and I feel like that those are all very, um, I think those are all very noir-like ideas. And then the, the fact that everything is dark and you get a lot of people in suits. Um, and then you have, in Batman Begins, you have um, Bruce Wayne, when he decides to leave Gotham, like he says, like he said, I, I got rid of my illusions about, the, about right and wrong and, and how thievery is wrong. He's like, I, he goes, I, I, I dropped that imme- almost immediately when I, realized, when I got really hungry and couldn't afford to buy anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have a character who's willingly dropping his illusions, but in response to a major event, which is the death of his parents. And so I feel like those, I feel like there's a lot of noir elements in those films as well. And while I'm not sure I would classify them that way, I think that it's, it can be strange as it may sound. I won't say comforting, but I'll say to embrace certain noir sensibilities after a major horrible event can be, Surpri- it can really be quite a reliable coping mechanism artistically. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry, I've been spouting off for a while there. I apologize. <laughs> I think Batman has an extremely rich history of drawing on mm-hmm. the noir tradition from he's the, the detective. Early, he's supposed to be. That's right, the world's greatest detective. From drawing on you know from the early comics, you know the first Batman's yeah. thirty nine or whatever, and that's um, concurrent with you know like the shadow, um, the spirit, the spirit mm-hmm. these sort of pulp thing and these comics will go would go on to sort of inform the look of film noir and then that the the relationship between film and comics would you know continue it's interesting too because when we were talking in the beginning about like formative influences and like how did you become aware of what film noir is and how it's sort of just floating in the culture i think like one of the first Things that made me aware of uh, the sort of noir style was Batman the Animated Series. Damn right. Right? This is my favorite favorite show when I was a kid, besides X Files. Um, But yeah, that was sort of the first time that I would see these sort of noir images and not before having a vocabulary of knowing what it is, because that, I guess, that series could be classified uh, retro noir because it takes place in sort of a. I guess it's modern times, but it's also like the 40s and there's no real, you know, understanding. It's it's, it's sort of a time out of place, but it's very solidly a film noir environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so but yeah, the whole history of Batman draws on noir at different points. And he's probably like one of the most noir superheroes, probably outside of Rorschach, which who is himself a riff on Batman. So. And one of the top five superheroes of all time, right? Um, uh, yeah, if your name is Ted Cruz. Is that where we're jumping to? He's a trendsetter. Look, we all know it. <laughs> um, now, I I don't want to focus on, like, neo-noir entirely, but I do have... I am fascinated by your not liking <laughs> very many of them. Is it that you don't like neo-noir movies, or there are neo-noir movies that you don't think of as noir? Like, no, let's say I just, Fargo. I just feel you like think it's... think of that as a successful noir movie? I don't think of that as a noir, noir movie. I think I, I would think Blood Simple is, Blood a, Simple, is yeah. a neo-noir. Or, or A Simple Plan, I think, yes. is definitely noir. Yeah, those are very similar movies. I is think it because all, Fargo doesn't have the... Because Fargo has the themes and story and characters of a noir tech movie, but it doesn't have the look. Is that... Yeah, because I think you need to have at least 40% of both of those elements. Okay. For it for me to be able to feel comfortable calling it a noir, because I think Fargo is... is uh, comes is drawing a lot from a uh, a black humor tradition, also a sort of rural um, drama tradition. But I think I think Blood Simple is a good example. I think one of the best neo noirs since 1990 is the Wachowskis movie Bound. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a, a an incredible because that's a, such a tight, um, suspenseful screenplay. And I, and I think. For me, the test in my mind that I do is, is this a successful neo-noir? If I, if I can take, if I can strip the basic elements of the story down and imagine it being filmed in 1945 mm-hmm. in black and white with con- those contemporary actors, would this storytelling still work? Absolutely, it would. So It's interesting you mentioned that because it's, I haven't done this in a long time, but there was a thing that I used to do on the website and I do fantasy casting where I would be like, Hey, imagine if this movie was made, but then I would do this retroactive fantasy casting, which was imagine this movie from a modern era as done in the 1940s. Right. And that actually helped me to realize that movies like the usual suspects and in my opinion, the uh, history of violence would work out very well and, and 
would work out really well as as noir. Yeah. Um, and then I think one that, and I say this not necessarily because the main character is a detective, but I feel like Gone Baby Gone has a lot of yeah. That's absolutely noir a neo noir. Um, even like uh, the town a little. Mm, I mean, a little because it's it's. A, I think anytime you're dealing because a lot of times when you're like for example, Usual Suspects. Usual Suspects, I always viewed as a riff on, you know, Kubrick's The Killing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these movies already are drawing on these noir antecedents. So it's kind of it's kind of hard to get away from just the history of film of these sort of films that are coming before them. So even sort of just in their very DNA, they have a sort of noir history. Like I'm looking at you know, the DVD of like Reservoir Dogs. Mm-hmm. It's like you know you could have made that in 1952 with Burt Lancaster and Charles McGraw and probably yeah. Timothy Carey. Yeah, absolutely. Timothy, <laughs> Timothy Carey would be Buscemi. There's yeah. no doubt. Yeah. There's no doubt. So yeah, I mean, you can, you can do that kind of fantasy casting. I just think that if you, you know, if you're stripping down, the more simple the screenplay is generally, the more likely it is to be successful as a, a noir or a neo-noir because they were often, you know, the B stories, very straight through lines, even if they're being told in flashbacks, the stories are usually very simplistic because they are about, you know, um, sort of street level people and you, the endings are sort of already mapped out. Like, you know, it's not going to end well for them. Um, I, yeah, I, as far as the stories being, this will get us back into actual like time period, correct noir. Yeah. As classical, far as the story, yeah. what's that? Classical. Classical. There we go. Um, as far as the stories being simple, I, I mean, I see that they are because there's so many of them are like simple cause and effect. One, mm-hmm. each choice leads to the next, but then like the big sleep obviously has a reference for being an incredibly yeah. complex and labyrinthine. That's a word you don't say out loud very much. I'm not sure if I pronounce it. Labyrinthine? Correctly. Labyrinthine? I don't I know. know. How to, maybe, I don't we're, spell it. maybe we're all pronouncing it wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that sort of plot. <laughs> I think it's pronounced Hegon. Hegon. Okay. Um, uh, You're right. I think, and I think there's a specific difference between the films noir that are based off of the hard world fiction, because those those um, books always purposefully had very complicated plots because they're mysteries. Mm. Um, and there is a, a, a very obvious difference between you know the the Chandler the Kane adaptations and the sort of the the Poverty Row studio or the B movies, a movie like Gun Crazy, for mm-hmm. example, which is just like, you know, the couple gets together, they go on a wild ride, you know how it's going to end. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, and it, there, one of the appeals to me, and I think to most people about film noir is even though the style is immediately recognizable, it's an extremely malleable form. You can have lots of different kinds of stories, lots of different kinds of films. And the tradition draws on, you know, literary as well as, photographic even painterly you know mm-hmm. like you know edward hopper things yeah. like that mm-hmm. so it's drawing on a lot of different forms to create a lot of different stories even though they sort of have a unifying um worldview um so i i hopefully this doesn't change the subject too much but it, it's something that uh i definitely wanted to bring up during this discussion which is uh Noir is very malleable, mm-hmm. and I and I think I'm more inclined to include something than not, mm-hmm. and say, yeah, I can. It's like, yeah, there's enough elements in there, sure. Yeah. But every once in a while, you'll look at a list of like, oh, the best films uh, films noir ever, and there's always one that shows up on almost every list that I feel like I don't think you belong here, mm-hmm. and that's Night of the Hunter. 
900, this is a very interesting case because because it is sort of accepted as a canonical film noir. Um, it's one of my favorite films. Yeah, it's just, my just, fourth favorite film. Just in general. But it, and I, I think I was thinking about this. I'm actually. just saying, I, I think I like it more than you do. No, fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> as I whip out my knuckle tattoos. Um, <laughs> oh, damn it. Yeah. Um, Mine just says Elwood. <laughs> no, but it's like, it's just, I think sometimes it happens that in retrospect, certain films get included as canonical film noirs based on the presence of a certain actor mm-hmm. or a certain director. And not so much about the content of the film. And I think that that's what happened with Night of the Hunter because it's, you know, a Southern Gothic. Yeah. Um, it's also a literary. It's a story about children. There's a lot of elements that don't jibe with the rest of film noir, but I think that it's included because of the sort of like supremacy of Robert Mitchum as a film noir mm-hmm. leading man. Um, but it's an interesting thing to talk about. But it does know. have that that high contrast look. There's a lot of it inky does. blacks and bright, but bright spots and stuff. Now we've talked about this before on the show with it's hard been a lines while. separating them. Oh yeah, know, it's that, the, the, that iconic it's extre- shot of extre- him on the horse. Yeah, and it's extremely amazing. expressionistic. Although it's more expressionistic, it's almost as if Night of the Hunter sort of leapfrogs film noir and goes right back into German expressionism in yeah. terms of lighting scheme. But then the story it's telling obviously is never is not a story that would be well. It is a story that would have been told in German expressionism. It's just it would have been a grim fairy tale. Yeah, because that's basically what it is. It's a a, a fairy tale with a boogeyman. Mm-hmm. So here's a, here's a, a strange. It's okay. So I I very much think in terms of color. I will associate everything and everybody with a color. There's an I don't know why. There's a name for it. I don't remember what it is. Yeah, I know. But yeah. When I think of film noir, obviously I think of black and white. When I think of Night of the Hunter, I think of brown. Um, now it's shot in black and white. Mm-hmm. You watch it and it's black and white. But for some reason, I think of it as as brown or sepia tone. One sepia, say. yeah. And um, and now, of course, that's just based entirely on me. I'm not going to say that. Oh, well, clearly the film is not a not a noir because of this. But I feel like that's worth noting. I think of the Maltese Falcon as black and white. I think of Double Indemnity as black and white. I do not think of Night of the Hunter as that. See, I, and think I think it it's, ha- there's a shimmering quality that I think, mm. like you said, I, I think you're dead on. It's almost like Night of the Hunter looked at traditional film noir and said, "Yeah, that's pretty surreal and strange." Eh, fuck you guys. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go further, and I think it. I think it honestly leaves film noir behind. Not in not in quality, but as far as how far it's willing to go in its style. Yeah, and I also think that maybe this is um, presumptive, but Watch I out. think okay. maybe the reason you think about it in CP tones is that it's um, entirely rural mm-hmm. and it's not urban. So like. It's not uh, set in. There are no set in stone rules when it comes to noir, obviously, because people can't even agree what it is. But it's most noir is notably right. urban, or mm-hmm. at least has the majority of sequences are going to take place in a city. Whereas Night of the Hunter is entirely rural. Yeah. So it it is. There are many elements that you know when you get right down to it, you're like you go down the noir, noir checklist and you're like it doesn't have this, it doesn't have this, it doesn't no. have this. Why do people think this is a noir? And I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, it's sty- highly stylized, very dark in some areas, and mm-hmm. and Mitchum, I think, are the big reasons. Um, 
David, your thoughts on this? uh, I like this idea of picking out movies that get considered noir and questioning whether or not they are. Mm -hmm. Because one of my favorite movies of all time, and I think it gets considered noir largely because it's very dark, uh, but it's also a Technicolor movie, which doesn't seem like noir to me. Is Lever to Heaven? Have yeah, ever seen? I love that movie so much. Oh, that's uh, that's is definitely it an, is it a, the canonical noir. There's no question. You, well, what 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 qualifies it for you? Watch out. Um, I think I'm, okay, I'm not I'm not insisting otherwise. I'm just well, wondering. it's a combination of the presence of Jean Tierney. Like okay. we're saying, there's a there's a definite star power there in terms of her being associated with film noir. But also, I think her being sort of the femme fatale role um, in that movie. And then also, I think if you just turned the color down on that movie, uh-huh. it would play beat for beat okay. like a film noir like Laura or Double Indemnity or anything. And I think that you're right that that's what makes Lever to Heaven so unique is that it trips you up a little bit because the colors are so lush. And also, you you, yeah. you hit on something else there that um, it's rare that the film fatale is the like main protagonist. The, the protagonist, of right? A movie. Exactly. Yeah, and because uh, I, I have a, a much easier time considering. Um, have you ever seen the damned don't cry? No. Um, that's uh, I'm bad with names, um, but that one's in black and white, so I have an easier time lumping yeah. that in than Lever to Heaven because of the Technicolor. But it is that is uh, it's something I hadn't really thought about. That yeah, just the fact that the femme fatale is the main character is makes it an outlier. Yeah, definitely, and the and the and the Technicolor and everything. And I think these two films are really really um, illustrative of these sort of films that are hard to classify, and maybe because when they were made, they were hard to classify. In order to talk about them and and sort of remember them, they have been lumped into this you know, this series or cycle or whatever people want to call film noir, because, you know, there are like murders in both. Mm -hmm. There's an element of violence. There's an element of um, sort of trying to solve a problem, even if it's not a traditional detective story and elements of mystery. So it's, uh, it's, it's unique. It's funny though, because you say like, is leave her to heaven a film noir or not? I've never met anyone who would not consider it one. It's like one of the premier film noir texts. And I'm not, I was not insisting that it's not, yeah. but I was wondering why I have that, what, that block little, in my mind. And I think it is those, those two things. But whereas, Oh, I wanted to get back to the damn don't cry. It's Joan Crawford. That's who I couldn't think of. Joan okay. Crawford yeah. plays a woman who it starts rural. She leaves her husband and kid. Cause she's so bored with being a mom. Oh, I've heard about this. And, yeah. and wife. And, uh, essentially like charms slash sleeps her way to the top of like an organized crime syndicate. Yeah. <laughs> it's an awesome movie. <laughs> that sounds like Joan. <laughs> yeah. Who, who made it? Uh, well, I guess I'll look oh, it up. Sorry. You guys talk amongst yourselves. Well, there's a, speaking of Joan Crawford, there's an interesting sort of intersection, getting back to film noir being malleable. There's an interesting intersection between the women's picture, quote unquote, or the melodrama and film noir. And it's very often that sort of these huge female stars that were maybe like really big in the 30s and early 40s almost getting a second life in film noir because and as the protagonist and so you sort of have an intersection of like these women's star texts of being having like larger than life personalities and then melding that with sort of a darkly stylized um, form of storytelling so like Mildred Pierce is like 
a great example of what is essentially a, you know, a woman's picture. Like if Mildred Pierce had been made in like 1934 or whatever, it would certainly not look the way it does. You know, the Michael, Michael Curtiz film does. And I think that's a, you can see that um, in contrasting like the Curtiz film and then also like the Todd Haynes um, miniseries that they did of mm-hmm. Mildred Pierce. So like the, the text itself, like the James N. Kane text itself can be noir, but it also can not be noir. It's, it's a sort of an interesting contrast in like in context and in, you know, making that movie in, in 1945 versus making it, you know, in 2010 or something. It's, um, I wanted to bring up actually a couple others that I just that I just thought of that I I have less of a problem thinking of as noir, and are often included on lists. Not always though. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to get uh, get your guys' take. Both of them are directed by Billy Wilder. The first is The Lost Weekend, mm-hmm. and then Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm iffy. On I'm certainly iffy on Lost Weekend because that seems more like a standard melodrama, but it's just so it's so dark in its tone, and he's willing to go so emotionally dark um, that I can see why someone would think that. But it's like, yeah, but there's no there's a there's a certain fatalism to it, but it's not it's not this idea of like people are out to get you. But maybe it's this idea of like, yeah, but you'll just get yourself if that's the case, you know, Mm -hmm. and that you're still we're still dealing with like. You know, the days of the, as much as I love it, the days of the thin man, which is the guy who can drink martinis all day and be fine. That's all well and good. That's not how life is anymore. You know, because I feel like the the effect of World War II, I think it had an impact in in every possible way, um, even in regards to. Yeah, even drinking isn't what it used to be. Or at least, and it probably was never this. Not probably. It was never this. Mm-hmm. But we can't we can't keep thinking of life this way. Mm-hmm. We need to look at the grim, harsh reality. And in grim, harsh reality, a guy who drinks as much as Nick Charles is going to be a, a real almost monstrous in in like Ray Milan in in The Lost Weekend. So I can see that it kind of comes from the same place as film noir, but I'm reluctant to say that it actually qualifies. Do you think of it as a noir? Last weekend, I don't. I think of it more as a social realist film, because I think it has, like, sort of a lesson to teach a little bit, even though Wilder doesn't quite go that way, because he's a little too cynical. Um... It's interesting, the noir connection with Lost Weekend, though, because it is the story for The Lost Weekend comes from Wilder's association with Raymond Chandler Mm. working on Double Indemnity. And Raymond Chandler was a notorious drunk, and Billy Wilder hated working with him Hmm. for that reason and just for rewrites, and they just didn't get along. And so it's sort of Hollywood legend or whatever that... um, the the movie immediately after Double Indemnity, Billy Wilder bases that character more hmm. or less on Raymond Chandler. So it's I, I everything is sort of floating and influencing each other. But for Lost Weekend, no, because I think there's and there's also too much surrealism. Mm. I think um, in the treatment of his hallucinations and things like that, it's a yeah. little too okay. Yeah, well, that, say that well, first. One sidebar, if you are reading a list of someone's favorite film noirs and they list The Lost Weekend, do you just dismiss the whole list then? No, because okay. it means they're watching good movies. I don't yeah, I could, I could care less. Okay, but, She doesn't dismiss uh, the list, but she won't talk to that person. <laughs> but no. you mentioned surrealism. Put them in my little book. <laughs> uh, surrealism. And I feel like, t- 
to get to the other one, Sunset Boulevard, which mm-hmm. has a lot of, I think, noir elements. But I think to me it is, I don't know if surreal is the right word, but there's a certain fantasticalism, fantasticism. I don't know. It, it's kind of fantastical and outlandish in ways <clears throat> that make me think that it's more, not to the extent of Night, Night of the Hunter, but more uh, more in, in that camp of it's, it's too unreal to me. I always Sunset thought, Boulevard. I always thought of Sunset Boulevard as, as, um, I do consider that a film noir, but I think the, the, the height, uh, the fantastic element you're, you're thinking about is maybe a theatrical element. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of proscenium arch in that movie right, right. because specifically because Norma Desmond is so theatrical. So the, the, the form and the look of the movie itself and the pacing of the movie takes on her sort of theatrical personality. And I, it, it has a sort of, it has a sort of, um, sickly, uh, sweet, quality too that's almost like a sort of a creepy almost like a haunted mansion kind of quality that is it's not quite horror but it's like a miss right. it's like a miss haversham type vibe yeah, yeah, yeah. you know where it's like this it's just a somebody's gone to rot a little bit and you don't get that in a lot of film noir but i think it's the sort of taking on the subjectivity of of her personality well and what's interesting is um I don't think I, David, I don't think I'd ever thought of it the way you worded it, but I think you're correct. And like, when I think of film noir, I think of cold, hard reality. Well, Norma Desmond is not cold, hard reality on the surface. Mm-hmm. Like when you look at her house, when you look at her chimp funeral, <laughs> when you look at just uh-huh. the world that she lives in, of course, it's, it's very ornate. It's very, it's ridiculously uh, opulent, but the cold, hard reality comes in when you see her. Yeah. And you see that, oh, all of this is just her desperately trying to be what she used to be, which, of course, goes back to what we're what, you know, what uh, what I keep returning to, which is uh, but what we've mentioned earlier, which is the idea of wishing things were like they used to be, mm-hmm. but they're not right. and they never can be again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can I can see it. I love Sunset Boulevard to get to the side. Topic. I immediately want to watch it now. Let's all watch. Let's it. all watch it. <laughs> I love it because it's one of the few. Hollywood satires that actually has teeth. Yeah. Because so many, like you mentioned Billy Weather being a cynic. And I think that's why so many quote unquote Hollywood satires are like just under the surface, actually very self-congratulatory. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I hate that actually a lot, but, uh, Sons of Boulevard is a definitely doesn't have yeah. that. And speaking of Wilder and satire and film noir, uh, one of his films that, um, his movie right after Sunset Boulevard, which I would consider, maybe more noir than, than either Sunset Boulevard or Lost Weekend, is Ace in the Hole. Oh, yeah. Which um, I've never seen. Ace in Marvelous. the Hole is the nastiest, most bitter <laughs> movie. Every line is a just a, a cutting... It just cuts you to the core. If you think Sunset Boulevard is pulls no punches, Ace in the Hole is like... It's a, it's a media satire, almost like um, it's a satire of like yellow gen- journalism uh-huh. in the way that Citizen Kane is, but it like blows Citizen Kane out of the water in terms of nastiness. <laughs> um, and you have like a totally off the wall um, Kirk Douglas performance, just the best, you know, heightened Kirk Douglas, another quintessential film noir actor. And a lot of the, even though it takes place, you know, um, sort of in like a mine 
shaft or it's like outside. I wouldn't say it's rural, but um, there are a lot of like very uh, high, there's a lot of high contrast lighting. There's a lot of bisecting lines. So I think it's an interesting example of sort of taking that um, noir style into a new uh, physical realm, a new place. Now you mentioned Kirk Douglas and like media satire. So, and when I think of like, sharp-edged media satire yeah. I do think of sweet smell of success oh absolutely i'm so and glad you brought that like, up it's i think it's gorgeous i think it's one of like one of the most beautiful films noir you would consider it that right oh i definitely consider okay. it film noir I, it's, one, it's one of my favorites if i i made a little list of actually my favorites and it's on there and uh uh we're gonna get to that list absolutely. <laughs> a minute. to quote inherent vice <laughs> Jimmy Wong Hao, uh, James Wong Hao, the cinematographer of Sweet Smell of Success, uh, a quintessential classical Hollywood cinematographer, but also lends some beautiful films noir. And Sweet Smell of Success is an interesting outlier. We're talking about film noir outliers because it's set in New York and most films noir are set on the West Coast. Yeah. Um, so that, I assume that because alone, of the promise of the West Coast, right? Like, yeah, there are a lot of reasons for that. I think also because well, let's talk the, about those. Actually. Well, because I well the the main one for me is that the West Coast and specifically Los Angeles as a city did not really come into its own until the immediate post war, whereas New York has a long history <laughs> of being an urban center and sort of a. America's most famous city. And then during the war and right after the war, Los Angeles grew like crazy. And that's why so many films were set there because it's really the city of that time. San Francisco too. Yeah. yeah. Both those two, the two poles of uh, film noir. It always struck me interesting that Chicago is almost never like that's the that's the gangster place that's, right it's, that's where, where, people, you have it's your, where people come from yeah for example also on my list a movie called the narrow margin which mm. is about a i think it's a, a witness uh he's going to testify against the mob and they're moving him from chicago to los angeles on a train hmm. and um that's um that's a great movie starring one of the uh, most quintessential noir actors, but not a name called Charles McGraw. And he was a character actor. Um, but this is like one of his lead roles. He has a face sort of just like chiseled granite hmm. and a very, um, husky voice. And so he usually played like, you know, heavies and toughs. And in this movie he plays, you know, the main character, but he's still like really gruff and stuff. That's, that's a great movie, but, uh, we can go back to sweet, sweet, sweet success. success. Okay. Oh, yeah. Sorry, um, yeah, just get, go go ahead. Um, yeah, I think um, in terms of its noir bona fides, you have, you know, uh, James Wong Howe, um, very urban, uh, urban landscape that also, like, draws upon, like, contemporary nighttime urban photography um, of the time. I'm thinking, like, of the photographs of, like, Ouija, you know, the crime photographer. Mm. Um uh, he shot, you know, New York during that time, and a lot of the photography, since it was shot on location, looks like, you know, those photographs. And then you also have Burt Lancaster, yeah. who, like Mitchum, is one of those iconic noir actors. And every time he's in a movie, in a black and white movie from this period, you're like, okay, there's <laughs> there's an element here, you know. And then also, I think the 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 the, the cynicism, the um, 
sardonic, um, cutting nature of the uh, of the dialogue and the screenplay, and the fact that it is so uh, relentlessly um, just um, sort of unforgiving. Everyone is nasty to each other. That's another, you know, thing that puts gleefully it gleefully so. Oh like, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's amazing. Yeah, it puts it in the Noir Hall of Fame in terms of, <laughs> but also in the Hall of Fame of just like sick, highest sick burns per capita. <laughs> um, but that's another podcast for another time. <laughs> Burt Lancaster fascinates me because I feel like history looks back on him as uh, this amazing leading man, which he was. But I think because of you know, from here to eternity, people think it was like. The, the height of romance, you know, right, yeah. I think of him as Elmer Gantry yeah. as, oh my gosh, JJ Hunsecker. Is that him? That's him. in okay. and, Success. Yeah. and then I think of him as, um, in, I don't remember the name of the character in seven days in May. And then just sleazy. Yeah. Monstrous guys. Yeah. And, I feel, and there's another one that I can't think of right now, but like, uh, well, there are several that I can't yeah, think of yeah. right now, but, um, and it just fascinates me that like history has, that, I feel. I feel. Like, what was that? Yeah. Like I feel Swede. like Swede. Is that? His, oh, that's right. That's his yeah. character. He has a yeah, name. Yeah, in, 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 in the in the killers. Yeah. And I feel like for for film fans, we think of him as that, yeah. as those those things, uh, the the really sleazy, fast talking guy. Um, but I feel like uh, by and large, history is like ah, oh, like I feel like most people think about Burt Lang- Lancaster and Swoon. Yeah. I, I think about him like, oh, I got better watch my wallet. Well, but that's one of the, like to get off topic. From here to eternity is one of those things that people associate with that like image of like the wave crashing mm-hmm. on the yeah, yeah. couple. Uh-huh. But is it's, it's not like a romance movie. It's a, f- a really great and pretty dark, or at least pretty cynical movie. Yeah. Um, like no one comments on the fact that that scene that everyone thinks of mm-hmm. is a scene of adultery. Um, anyway, I love from here to eternity. Yeah, that, anyway. that, that, that scene has gotten removed from its context quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is uh, the that, that, that height one. of romance, that <laughs> wave scene. I saw from here to eternity, um, the music box in Chicago used to do awesome, like 11 a.m., like Saturday and Sunday matinees. I think I went to one, then I was usually like, of, this is too early. <laughs> usually of like classic film. I think I saw The Great Escape there. I think we saw The Scarlet Empress yep. there. Oh, um, nice. I know I saw some other stuff, but one of them that I saw was from here to eternity, and it was like... It's there are certain movies that have I've talked about this on repeating myself podcast listeners know there are certain movies that have these reputations that are do a disservice to what the movies actually are. Like yeah. like Saturday Night Fever is one that yes. I always think great well, example. It's this like corny like yeah. disco movie. No, it's such a it's so it's bleak. amazing movie. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, Rocky is one I usually get. Yes. Rocky, uh, yeah. Planet of the Apes is another one. Yeah. that I feel like seems like it's oh it's camp. No, it's not. It's an amazing so sci-fi good. movie. Yeah. And yeah, from here to eternity was kind of one that I just thought of as like oh this is like a romance right? It's got kind of a romantic sweeping mm-hmm. name. No, it's a World War Two movie. Yeah. That, uh, it's pretty. Pretty yeah. cynical and down to earth and the, human. The, I love the, that movie. The phrase that precedes it is "I hate you from here to eternity." Just <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, why'd they leave that out? Um, A much better title. <laughs> Let's talk about some of your favorites. Oh, yes, okay. Absolutely. Well, I'm gonna, we're gonna bring. I'm gonna bring this in. Burt Lancaster. Okay. This is the movie along with the Killers, um, and Sweet Smell Smell Success, the film noir that I like Burt Lancaster, and it's a movie called Brute Force. Hmm. I think the director is Jules De, uh, Jules Dassin. Who's oh. not French? 
um, unlike his his name. Right. He, he was a <laughs> people when people read his name, it's like who's Jules de Saint? It's like no, he's like from Brooklyn. Um, uh, <laughs> people think he's European because he had to go to Europe because um, he was blacklisted. Hmm. So um, brute force was one of the movies he made um, before the blacklist. I think it's like 1947. This is a prison noir. So it uh, ha- uh, Burt Lancaster is in prison with a, b- a bunch of other uh, dudes, and then the uh, movie flashes back to what got them into prison, and almost um, to a man, it's because they were betrayed by a femme fatale, uh-huh. <laughs> um, or they you know made a bad deal, or they were trying to you know steal money for their wife or something but it has to do with so it's interesting because it's unlike a lot of films nor this movie has a lot of women in it but only because they relate to the story of how these men got into prison so the the Hmm. storytelling is really interesting and then also it's just like like the name suggests it's extremely brutal and forceful and like it's it's just a very like blunt movie the violence is very blunt it's almost shocking because you think it's like from 1947 but it's very like um sudden and unexpected and and curt and they and the prison is the attempted prison escape at the end is like really harrowing like i think it's a movie that if you when you show people and then you tell them what year it's made they're like they're shocked Hmm. it's so it feels so um modern that's that's on the list um what else is on your list? Oh, wait, you know what? Before I forget, because there was another one we were talking about things that don't qualify. I'm looking up, I have this list just that someone posted online of 100 Great Film Noirs. And I've seen this before. Uh, sorry, Films Noir. Um, Notorious. That's not a film noir, right? It's a spy thriller. There, I, yeah. yeah, I think of it as like an espionage thriller. Oh. Yeah, Why I, I would agree. I think sometimes people put too much Hitchcock. They assign... Hitchcock as a film noir director, I I, I don't, don't I don't see that. Yeah, I mean, I would almost he's done film film noir, right? Like, I I don't think of him as that at all. No, I mean, the only movie that I would make a case for of Hitchcock's as being a film noir is Strangers on a Train. Otherwise, I really right, yeah. don't consider yeah. any of his films made from 1941 to 1958 to be films noir. I think people. Because, you know, there's a style to him, but also I think people, they look at sort of a a standard thing that he will do in his stories, which is, oh, a regular guy gets pulled into something. You know, like Double Indemnity, it's like, that's not the same. Mm -hmm. Like, this is, he falls, he comes into this plot, and the plot is not a film noir plot. It is an espionage plot. It's a, it's a, a thriller plot. Yeah, exactly. And so, and it's just, it's... Yeah, they're thrillers, know. they're mysteries, they're yeah. suspense films, because the mechanics of the storytelling is fundamentally different than most film noir mechanics. But, you know, a lot of people... And and to me, an interesting thing about film film noir is it's not a genre or a style or whatever for auteurs, for the most part. Um you know, I think probably the biggest, apart from like Billy Wilder or Orson Welles, and those are sort of debatable. Most of the most of the film noir output is made by guys who are not don't have you know big books written about them, hmm. and they're mostly you know known because of this noir cycle. You know, guys like Edward Dmitrik or Jules Dassin or Robert Siodmak or. Edgar Ulmer, people like that, people who are basically only known today because of their films noir and most of their other filmography is not seen or studied. 
Um, but I don't know. Some people put a lot of Wells in the noir canon, but so let me, maybe that's okay, arguable. Hang on, let me, as a as a Wells fan, let me start thinking. Okay, so obviously Touch of Evil. Yeah. Um, but even even Touch of Evil maybe. is like arguable because to me it's too it's too baroque and hmm. it's too that is there's a lot because that's well I don't remember who defined it or whatever but I I remember some some theorist was like okay film noir from 1941 to 1958 from Maltese Falcon to Touch of Evil so Touch of Evil will be the very end of that cycle and I think that you can see because to me Touch of uh, Touch of Evil plays much more like Wells's The Trial than it does mm. like Double Indemnity or The Killers or it's so it's so on the edge there. I think what what puts it over for me is Wells' character. Uh, okay, like he yeah. seems like such a noir character that just right. But isn't that why he stands out? You know, like a bull in a china shop in literally well, and, physically, and, you know, in that movie, he is an archetype that is outside of his realm of his I, time. I mean, I don't know. I could see that, you know, yeah. out of his time. I could see that. Yeah. Um, but as far as just this almost grotesque yeah. type character, I mean, he's right in there with Dennis Weaver, uh, <laughs> who as the nightman, who one oh, of my I favorite love, characters yeah. of all time. Such a weird performance. Uh, like, Where is that even coming from? It's so weird. What I know of Dennis Weaver I don't know where that's coming from. He's, he seems like the height of stability, but he was able to tap into this weird place inside him. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, what's his name? Ak- uh, Akim Timurov or something like that. Yeah. Who plays mm-hmm. Uncle Joe Grandy. Yeah. Like, and just the way that he, uh, they're all grotesques. Yeah. Exactly. Except for, yeah. except, except for Charlton Heston, Heston and well, and, and, even and Janet Lee. Yeah. She's not the rest of them. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so I feel like, uh, I feel like the, the, physical design of the Wells character fits in very well. And then, and it's a, just a, such a very ugly setting. Uh-huh. Um, it's gorgeously shot, of course, but almost as a way of heightening the ugliness. Like yeah, even, even where Wells character eventually dies, it's just like in this dirty river and yeah. just, uh, and so I think because of in, because of the nature of his character and then the vent, the general look of it and just the, just the shitty darkness of it uh, mm-hmm. uh, as far as the world that they're living in and just you know of course the main character is as morally upright as you can get he's played by Charlton Heston mm-hmm. um, and uh, and so I think there I think that probably muddies the waters a little bit but uh, but by and large I feel like I would consider it a noir but I can absolutely see why someone and Baroque is the best possible way to describe Orson Welles style like yeah. even even The Stranger which I don't necessarily think is, is a noir um it shows up on lists. The lists I did in research oh, okay. for this. People in terms of think? in terms of Wells, I would say that Lady, think, Lady from Shanghai yeah. is the one that I would say is the most noir. Uh, probably the most, yes. Yeah. I think Mr. Arcaden fits in there pretty oh, well. Yeah, um, but isn't that also sort of an espionage spy? A not, little. I mean, there's really, like an international sort of element there's a, to there's it. There's a globe trotting element. Yeah, but it's still like Which to one me is guy. Not, yeah. It's one guy investigating, and he's involved in something bigger than him. But it's not like an international spying. It's just a big, powerful man. Yeah, that know? reminds me of a note I meant to make about noir films not set in America. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, third uh, man. The third man, Rafifi. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's R- a there's a big um, strain even in American noir of sort of what they call south of the border noir, mm-hmm. which is where the characters go to Mexico or South America to sort of either to get away from whatever they're doing. There's yeah. a really wonderful film noir, which is a hybrid 
hybrid film produced um, at RKO by Howard Hughes, starring Robert Mitchum and Jane Russell. It's called His Kind of Woman. This movie is unlike any movie you'll ever see in your whole life. Hmm. It's ostensibly a film noir. It's also a broad comedy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's also a, like, it's set at a Mexican resort hotel. Vincent Price is in it. Um, playing a hammy Shakespearean actor who bothers Robert Mitchum and Jane Russell. He's just like a hotel guest. Oh my god! <laughs> it's a crazy this. outlandish movie. What's it called again? It's his... called it's called His Kind of Woman. Okay. Um, it's the most delightful movie you will ever see, and it has elements of film noir, but it also has elements of like five other genres in it. So it's hard to classify, but it's a wonderful. But it wonderful hangs together, film. right? Like it's oh, it hangs together, but only because it's all so nutty. Okay, all right. <laughs> you know, and Insanity you know, and Mitchum is sort of sleepwalking his way through it as hmm. in that wonderful Robert Mitchum fashion. Yeah. So you can tell in his performance that he's like can you believe this shit? Like sort of to the audience, like it's, it's wonderful. And he, he and um, Jane Russell have amazing chemistry. Uh, Uh, I didn't, I didn't want to take issue actually real quick with uh, the categorization of Rafifi. Is that a heist? movie? I feel like that's more of a heist movie. All right. Well, the photography though, pushes it over in terms of, of being a film noir, because even though it does, cause it's funny because Jules Dassin, that's another one of his films. He, I would I look at Rififi as sort of the midpoint between um like a very noir film like um Night in the City or uh that he that he did in the the 40s and uh, early 50s and then his films that he made in Europe that are just like pure heist films like there's a movie he made in Greece called like Potopki or something Top like Cappy? That. Yes, that Wait, it is. For which uh oh shoot, now I can't remember his name. Damn it. And that's was, just a pure. He, he won supporting actor yeah. for it, and that's okay. uh, and now I can't remember. But that's just a pure heist film, right? Isn't it? Peter Ustinov. That's who I'm thinking of. Yeah, he and it's got uh, Maximilian Schellen and right, right, right. Yeah, so it's sort yeah, of it's, it's sort of like, like a, a hei- it's like a zany I, heist. Is it film it is. It's top, a little bit top of copy. I don't know because I've always I, I've never seen the movie, but whenever I see it, I think top copy. Like I ran a bunch of top. I ran a stack of copies. On the coffee machine. It's a this city, is though. One. Isn't it named for the city? I don't know. <laughs> I, can never, sequel, I, get, I get those, con- I get those consonants uh, confused. But yeah, yeah it's a Rififi has sort of like, he still has that the visual styles of the films he was making in America. And then he sort of like transitions to making more heist films. But I still consider Rififi. Um, to go back to South of the Border Noir. Mm-hmm. Criterion somewhat recently put out Ride the Pink Horse. Did you see that? Um, I have not seen this. It's so on my cool. to, it's on my to do list. Very but cool. Yeah, I've heard it's good. Um, uh, I keep thinking. Okay, we're going to have to end the episode eventually. Never. Um, probably pretty soon. I want to get more soon. to your favorite yeah, yeah. list, but then we yeah. should wrap yeah. up pretty soon because um, we have to record a thing after this. Actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Um, speaking of Mitchum, mm-hmm. uh, a movie that I love. And that often winds up on these lists, but I feel like it doesn't count is Cape Fear. Oh. Um, and it's like, you know, of course it's black and white. There's a dark quality to it. It's mm-hmm. got Mitchum in it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of it takes place like in the darkness with like, you know, and in, in, in alleyways and such. Um, but is I feel like there's too much that there's too much of like a here's the good guy. Here's the bad guy. In I Cape think Norm. so. There's not yeah. like an antihero in Cape Noir. Yeah, there's well, no why? like moral gray area right and i've read the executioners the the book that it's based on and boy if they had gone if they had just like stuck with that um i think it would have been i mean the the 
the uh, Sam Bowden character is still the good guy, but there's a lot more ambiguity there. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think they went so I think Scorsese went so far with it with his Cape Fear that it's just like I don't know what this is. Yeah, it's just well, speaking of Baroque. I, yeah, I love Scorsese's Cape Fear uh, so much. Just, I adore uh, it. I, I I'll I, go I, on I, record I, as saying that I do not. Really, I think I, it's Scorsese's worst film. Oh, I th- I think it's, there's a bombast to it that I don't yeah, really like that, th- much. and that's yeah, what I yeah. do love. I mean, I love like De Niro looking directly into the camera, and I love that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, you know, bright. Uh, yeah, it's a great HD uh, movie. If you've only ever seen it on VHS or DVD <laughs> or whatever, it's I, fantastically saturated in color. It is I love uh, it so much. It has worked its way. I mean, well, yeah, it has worked its way into my. Uh, everyday usage because Max Cady being obnoxious in a movie theater is oh, a reference God. I will go back to right. over and over again. Yeah, that's the uh, nightmare. In, in the new one. Uh, new. It's 25 years old now. So um, you think Gangs of New York is a better film than Cape Fear? <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis's character is pretty great. You're putting me on the spot, but yeah, I'm going to. I really don't care for Cape Fear. I think. I think. Uh, Gangs of New York is a failure on the whole, but there are parts that work. Okay. I think Cape Fear is just like a misfire. Tyler, what is your least favorite Martin Scorsese film? Boy, oh boy. Hang on now. Um, I never saw Kundun. Uh, neither did I. Okay, you I haven't what? seen it either, so that one's off the table. For uh, my, my reference I, for Kundun okay. is on The Sopranos when oh, Christopher boy. saw Martin Scorsese going into a nightclub, and his thing that he decided to shout out was, Kundun! I liked it! <laughs> <laughs> That's a great joke. <laughs> Uh, least favorite, and I feel bad saying this because I know people love it. I'm not a big fan of Hugo. Um, I didn't see that one. Actually. I feel like it's just a you know. No, I didn't like that either. Yeah, it just it's it, it's just it's just there. Yeah, it's very <laughs> it's very inert. There's a lot of whimsy, but it's like for nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. whimsy. It's very whimsical, and, and it clearly it, it's about it features his love of film because you know Melier, yeah. Melier is a character played yeah. very well by Ben Kingsley, but it it ultimately amounts to yeah, who gives a shit. Yeah. I know, Tyler, you and I, are neither neither of us is that big a fan of The Departed. Do you like The Departed? I only saw it once when it came out. I did like it then, but I haven't revisited it. I don't love it. There are parts I love about it, and it's remarkably rewatchable. And that's what, the only reason I put yeah. it above Gangs of New York is that it is a very watchable movie. Yeah. Whereas Gangs of New York, I felt like I was checking my watch. Gangs of New York I don't wear a watch, but meta, I was metaphorically checking my and watch. That, and that's the thing. Every time you look, you're like, damn it. <laughs> now I don't know how, 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 <laughs> into, how far into this we are. Um, yeah, it's, uh, to me, Gangs of New York, it's, it's a deeply flawed film. But like that Bill the Butcher character is very solid to me. And just like... And there's I also like of, Brendan Gleeson a lot. There's a lot of world building that's very satisfying just yeah. to sort of watch and experience. Yeah. But I and I like Liam Neeson in it, too. Yeah. All right. Uh, we really do need to wrap up soon. We shouldn't end on talking about Martin Scorsese because <laughs> that's not what we came <laughs> no. to talk about. How can I tie this into Martin Scorsese? <laughs> oh, I can tie it. Here, I got it. Okay, on my list, one of the films is Robert Wise's The Setup. Oh, now, the setup, the setup is the movie that Scorsese pulled the most from for Raging Bull. So that's my Scorsese tie-in to that. Okay. But this is also featuring one of the best film noir actors, Robert Ryan. Yeah. Extremely underrated actor. Was also in a lot of westerns. Probably the Wild Bunch people mm-hmm. know. But um, the setup, just a beautiful... Talk about a lean screenplay. Just from point A, from, from point A to point B, the photography, never better. The best boxing scenes ever filmed. And this is a great story. This is like the quintessential story about a boxer that's up against it and he has to, you know, go down. And it's just, it's never been better told and it will never be better told. But I feel like so many people 
would look at that movie and just say like, well, it's a sports movie. Like, how is it a film noir? It couldn't be more like this. This goes yeah. to your point about how malleable noir can be. Yeah. Because if you look at the story beats, like let's let's take boxing out of it. Yeah. It could be anything. It could be anything. He's he's down on his luck so much so that people just assume he's going to lose. Yeah. They're basically betting on it to the to the extent for those that don't know. Uh, so his manager agrees to have him take a dive without telling Robert Ryan. Mm hmm assuming he's not going to win like that already this guy again he's up against it like his own manager doesn't doesn't believe him it's like i don't even need to tell him to take a dive he'll just lose um and then it's not a twist to say he doesn't yeah he actually like again like it's, it goes to this idea of like it's like he pulls it all together and he and he wins and he succeeds like we're all like we're all trying to do he does it american dream oh boy and it's the worst possible thing that could happen to him. Yeah, because and he's it completely just clueless. Sets just a series of disastrous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, things yeah it's a wonderful. Film. And the photography is just top notch. Oh, all right. Um, let's run down. Let's run okay, down what you did. The, get the, to. Now, the last film that I wanted okay. to really make a case, a strong case for, is a very atypical film noir um, directed by Anthony Mann called Reign of Terror, also known as The Black Book from 1949. This is the world's only French Revolution film noir. <laughs> it's as amazing as it sounds. It's, uh, it's literally about the French Revolution. Um, you know, uh, Danton, Robespierre. There's a little, there's an element of sort of... Um, uh, espionage, but it's very everybody's like you know um, stabbing each other in the back. There's literally a uh, Robespierre's black book of people that he's going to behead goes missing, and there are all of these um, people that are trying to find it and people pretending to be other people. The photography is extremely um, dark and high contrast, and um, it's just a really bizarre film a miss uh, a mishmash of of genres but it, it works as a noir it also works bizarrely as a historical drama um and uh norman lloyd is in it oh. and norman lloyd is still alive and yeah. I, I saw yeah. him talk about this film at, at the at tcm fest this past year and uh if you ever get a chance to see norman lloyd talk about a film that he was in or even a film that he's not in he's like the world's best speaker yeah he's like a hundred now he's a hundred i think yeah. he's just turned a hundred and he's yeah. in train wreck yeah he is yeah. so yeah. this is was, yeah and he was in uh orson welles julius caesar yes uh, which i think is so he'll amazing. he'll always come out to talk about wells or hitchcock yeah. but now he can talk about amy schumer too yeah. so that's exciting <laughs> that's the only there's one man can that exists that can tie the two together and it's norman lloyd <laughs> oh well, boy um just without comment what's it? Well, if if we're rattling off uh, film noir, films noir that okay. we recommend, yeah, uh, there are two that I wanted to throw out, and one David I know you love, which is Scarlet Street. That was on my list. Which nice. I think is amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Oh, Lang, that's the other auteurist filmmaker that oh, yeah. has the most film noir. Did he do the so, Big Heat? Yes, which I really love. Um, and he did okay. um, Clash by Night. Is that him? Oh, I think so. Yes. I'm gonna look that up while you talk, Tyler. Anyway, what's your, and the what's other your one is. And it's been a while since I've seen it to the extent that I might get the full title wrong. I think it's called Where the Sidewalk Ends. That's on my list as well. Which I really... Otto Preminger. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that yeah. explains it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought it was great. It was really... Uh, and Dana Andrews I, I, is fantastic in that. 
Hmm. Is that he is great? Yeah. I'm trying to think in terms of like I get he's. I don't think of him as like uh, an inherently noir actor, but I feel like he's been in he was in several, right? Oh yeah, he was in okay. a lot. I think he has the he has the jaw for yeah. it. He has the detective jaw. Yeah, and he's got and he has very expressive eyes of just like I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but uh, but that one's really, and I feel like that character. I feel like they give more backstory to him uh, than a lot of noir protagonist have mm-hmm. it's a lot more about his character yeah um which and I, so I, those are the two that i wanted to mention that i really like fantastic I, yeah um i already mentioned you mentioned scarlet street i already mentioned pitfall and the damn don't cry which were the ones that i had to feel like don't get talked about as much that i love those um, are great you know what's a bit overrated i think what's that uh crisscross crisscross yeah i don't find it as good as compelling I, I like crossfire however which i haven't seen yeah yeah you'll get caught up in it the but, three, uh, yeah. yeah you're nice. talking about the board game right <laughs> yeah absolutely okay. all right the but board game from 1993 that's yeah the yeah <laughs> crisscross i first knew of i guess back when i was like in college right after college when i first saw los angeles plays itself and they because they shot yeah. in uh, uh bunker hill um and i was very excited to see it and i was kind of let down by it i mean it does get like really violent at the end with people like blowing up and stuff, but, um, it didn't, didn't do it for me. Fun fact. Uh huh. Edward G. Robinson's character's name in Scarlet street is, Oh, Chris cross. Chris cross. Right. There you go. Yeah. Um, all right. What's a uh, rattle off. What's do you want me to just go down the list? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I mentioned some of these before I have sweet, small success, a film we I didn't get to talk about, but everyone should see called nightmare alley. Uh, okay. A shot by, if I'm not mistaken, league arms. It has some of the most, breathtaking cinematography that you'll ever see in a film noir and it is a subgenre of noir that we did not talk about carnival noir which is films okay. noir that have a carnival <laughs> or a uh, amusement park element of so it so many clowns at midnight it's scary it is scary <laughs> and it's very um uh cynical and kind of perverse um and then we have brute force um the setup gun crazy which i mentioned briefly which is probably when, when people say what I only want to watch one film noir. What should it be? I tell them to watch Gun Crazy. Mm. Um, Kiss Me Deadly, which we didn't talk about, but uh, it's amazing. Yes, which, um, I, I, I need don't, to rewatch because I did not. I was in college. I did not. Well, oh, you're, it's you, so you, good. You don't like anything Mike Hammer or Mickey Spillane, right? Yeah, I have trouble with that, and also. It, well, the ending is something I didn't like at the time that in retrospect, I think I would love now yes. because it's so crazy. Ending. Yeah. Uh, maybe I, sh- I should rewatch. Yeah, that's the whole a nu- thing. A nuclear bomb that's basically whispering to you. Oh, yeah. the best. Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Um, uh, the Lady from Shanghai, um, Black Book, Reign of Terror, uh, The Narrow Margin, uh, Richard Fleischer directed that. Very good. Where the Sidewalk Ends and Night of the Hunter. Okay. I think those are good also, Too Late for Tears. I want to give a shout out to Too Late for Tears and Elizabeth Scott, who does not get enough credit. Okay. I find it, uh, I like the phrasing uh, of this in regards to Gun Crazy. Uh, if there is any movie that someone's like, I'm only going to watch one film noir my entire life, what should it be? You say Gun Crazy. Yeah. I'm torn between either Out of the Past mm. or Double Indemnity. Ooh. See, those are two. They're two, they're two different t- kinds. But to me, I always go with Gun Crazy because it's more illustrative of film noir because it's a more of a B movie. And I mm, always think of true. I always think of Double Indemnity as an A movie mm-hmm. sort of slumming with a B story. Mm-hmm. And Out of the Past is very 
beautiful and well-appointed as well. Even though you have Mitchum and there's a there's a lot of cynicism, it's very romantic. It's very pretty. Mm-hmm. Passages of that movie are very pretty. So I always, even though I like those films and they're both great and they're both classical noirs, I always sort of want to go with something a little dirtier. That's interesting. Okay. I, I usually think in terms like from a script standpoint. Yeah. Because I tend to think of noir as remarkably quotable and mm-hmm. i think those are probably the if you're two gonna go with quotable. quotes then it has to be double indemnity there's no quite i mean that oh, that boy. dialogue it's just like people go nuts for that um uh, someone's saying i forget who is it uh greer jane greer in jane greer and out of the past in out of the past yeah. where she says like i don't want to die and he's like well neither do i but if i have to i'm gonna die last like are you fucking kidding me it's so good <laughs> awesome uh, all right, that's a good. Uh, oh yeah, you mentioned Elizabeth Scott, and I knew the name was uh, familiar to me. She's the femme fatale in Pitfall. Yes, we talked about. Yep. Um, yeah. Uh, this has been great. This is so much fun. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Thanks okay. For having me on. You can find us at battleshipretention.com. That's where all of the all of our uh, reviews are. Uh, this week we reviewed a ton of shit. Yeah. Um, I got a review uh, End of the Tour and Best of Enemies. I don't know. What did you have this week? I have Mission, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation, Rogue Nation. And uh, the Blu-ray. Uh, yeah. I reviewed the Blu-ray of uh, Burying the X. So the Joe Dante. The Joe Dante uh, film. film. Which I'm hearing not good things about. It is not good. That's a shame. I love Joe Dante. <laughs> um, and I want to talk to you about Rogue Nation, specifically about punctuation. Um, oh. oh. <laughs> this is in the years old arguing with yes, us. Yes. That's for off mic. Um, but that is a punctuation nerd's dream title. Mission colon impossible dash rogue nation. Yes. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> those are the reviews. Uh, you can email us at David at battleship com or Tyler at battleship com. You can follow me, David on Twitter at Davy pretension. You can follow Tyler at Tyler pretension. Uh, what's going on at more than one lesson this week? Well, not much. I'll okay. be honest with you. Uh, we, you reviewed the end of the tour over there. At that website. I did. And actually I'm uh, somewhat pleased with my review of it. And so go to more than one lesson.com and read my review of the end of the tour. And then also, uh, due to scheduling issues, there is no epi- official episode. Okay. I may record something on my own that actually will tie into our, uh, uh, Rorschach, uh, Ted Cruz okay. discussion. Uh, this week in my, my other podcast is about television. It's called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. This week we are talking about Rick and Morty and Wet Hot American Summer First Day of Camp, I think it's called. Have you watched first, it yet? No, I don't okay. think it's premiered yet. Oh, has it not? I okay. think it's, maybe tonight it does. I don't okay. know. Oh. Um, that's what's going on with us. Kristen, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is sales on film, and then my Tumblr is also sales on film. So sales on film.tumblr.com. But if you just Google sales on film, all one word, it's just me that comes up. So if you just want to find uh, horrible things that I wrote eight years ago on that. How how do they spell sales? Sales? John John Sales or like. No, John Sales, I want to put it on record that John Sales is an imposter. My last name is in the (laughs) Oxford English Dictionary. It's spelled exactly like the word S A L E S. All right. Also, Soupy Sales, not a real sales. Oh, okay. Fair enough. enough. That's not his name. Oddly enough, uh, his name is Soupy Jones. <laughs> Thank you. This was, um, a, this was a lot of fun. This was a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. 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 This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 